should I say? She once had me. Glenn Falcon, Slamper Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Yo. Freelance writer and critic for Nehru. Yo, yo, boys in the hood. And joining us <laughs> as a special guest, back on the show, Lisa Malou from the Limerick Review. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me back, guys. So that song, Lisa, was uh, one of your suggestions, actually. What was that? We just listened Norwegian, to it. One of my favourite Beatles songs. Beautiful, beautiful song. I just love it. It is gorgeous. It's actually my favorite number from Rubber Soul. I'm sorry it wasn't in the film that we'll be talking about later in the program, which is yesterday, which is in cinemas tomorrow, not confusing at all. We will also <laughs> be talking about Parasite, which is in cinemas tomorrow as well. And later on the podcast, subscribe on iTunes and Spotify, we'll be talking about spoiler discussions for both of these movies. But first, we just wrapped the Sydney Film Festival. It's We've talked a little bit about how we feel, just kind of just getting over, coming down from it now. But Lisa, you have been to a lot of Sydney Film Festivals. How did you find this one? How did you find this ranked up uh, with yeah, all the others? And could you just let us know, so we know where you're coming from, how many Sydney Film Festivals you've been to? 30. This was my 30th consecutive. Wow been going since 1990 every year and uh, not every year have I gone to 50 or 60 films sometimes in the early days it may have been just a few but the last 15 years it's probably been at least 30 40 50 every year so it's my favorite time of the year it's just heaven I love it yeah I feel the same way actually it's such a special time if you're a film nerd it's yeah, it's yeah. just it's the best. It's the best. No, I, re- I really love it. Yeah. Oh, we loved it too. It's, it's it is a nice time to see your friends and get together and see some great films, see some terrible films. But in terms of the program itself, uh, what what are some of your feelings? Do you feel this was a good year? Do you feel that they missed the mark a little? Where were they, where did they land? I have a theory on that. Actually, I know a lot of people do talk about a good a good year, a weak year, a strong year, that sort of situation. But I actually think it really depends on the choices you make in that act- in that year. So this year there were 300 and something films. Oh, yeah. And I think over 100, 120, I think, were features. I, I think there were, like, they say there were 307, but I counted it, and I think they're, they're using some creative methodology to bump it up from, like, 224. Ah, uh, but also I guess there were the editions as well that you, came out mm, an extra six or eight, I think, yeah, came later. I think, I think it's short films and stuff that, that makes it 307. Yes, yes. I think right. they said it was 120 or so features. But look, of that, just say you were, say the medium goer might see 20. Uh, you know, obsessives like us might see 50 and some people get a flexi 10 and that's it for the year. And that's probably more than the average Australian mm. who's not obsessed with film. But say you were seeing 20 films and you had the misfortune of picking the 20 duds out of 120, you're going to have a terrible experience. If mm. you had the good fortune of picking the best films and that's the thing no one has the same experience all of us could have seen 30 different features and had no crossover it really does make a difference last year i had the best luck i've ever had i saw a lot of films and it just was like the good times kept rolling on but i remember a few years ago um it was probably like 2014 or so i saw about 30 films and a good chunk of them were duds and by the end of it i felt so worn down (laughs) So yeah, and that but that's the thing. But in, even in that given year, I bet if you spoke to someone else, they may have thought it was the best in ten years. Yeah, and I think it's not all luck. There is research, and obviously people have their own personal opinions, and you know the sort of genres they like. Like I'm too, I'm too much, I'm too. We'll see to see horror, so I'm not even going to watch those. Someone else not might all like. This year. Yeah, some people don't like um, drama as much, and they're more comedy, mm. but. If you do the, I think if you do a little bit of work, a bit of research, read some of the overseas reviews, 
yeah. follow directors that you love, performers that you love, or even try and seek out new directors. And you will have, I think that's the way to have the good experience. Just do a little bit of work and your future self who sees them, you know, three weeks later will really appreciate the effort you went to when you go through the program. I think so too. Um, I think also the longer you do it, the better you are at picking out a program. After a while, you start to notice the things that sound like they're just going to be full of arthouse cliches and go, okay, I don't need that. You know, you become a... (laughs) Sometimes I do like an arthouse cliche, but I do. Yeah. (laughs) And you get to know the the kind of directors that keep cropping up at the festival circuit and, you know, people you can trust. I think, Chris, this year especially, uh, the way you described when you're reading the program and you picked out some of the cliche, horrible well, films, I, I, there I are think few, you were quite spot on. Right. The, the yeah, there are a few, like, slam, um, <laughs> that I just looked at it and thought, this is going to be bad. And then What's always it got met expectations. me is that this year I found, I tried to pick out films based on a great premise. And I picked a lot of films with great premises, which turned out to be absolutely terrible. I should have looked more to how they might manage the execution a lot in terms of, as Lisa alluded to, the star power, the talent behind it, which I didn't do as much this year. <clears throat> Judy and Bunch. Well, probably a lot of films yeah. get greenlit based on having an idea and then there's no actual substance behind that. It just sounds marketable. But really, a, right. a lot an idea, but you have to execute it well, that's right. or it doesn't work. A lot it's of the engaging, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm, a trend I noticed, I think we all noticed this, was that a lot of the films felt like padded out shorts. Yeah, they were just proof of concepts being elongated into features, which is mm. kind of sad. And one of them we're talking about a little later too. I have something to say on that. <laughs> but I, one other point, I though I do say it's worth a bit of research. There is the chance element too, and I and I can't uh, I can't stress enough what joy there is in an unexpected surprise. Mm. Sometimes there's a little space in your schedule and it's the only film that's showing at 2 o'clock on Wednesday or whatever. So you choose it. And sometimes that's the best, one of the best things you've seen in the year. So there really is that, this year, that element of surprise too. I had pretty much no expectations for The Unknown Saint. A space just popped up in my schedule and that turned out to be one of the best films I saw at all festival. And so. that's one of the joys of festivals. Yeah. And I find that Sydney at MIF, you know, all different festivals, sometimes it's just, the, the film gods shine on you, and just what you happen to pick is really great. Yeah, mm. happens to be the portion of Lady on Fire. It's my second favorite of the festival. I'm so glad I d- did take the reputation to go to that screening. But Lisa, you also have some favorites from this year's festival. I do, I do. Look, my top two, I love so much. There's a millimeter between them, you know, in terms of which ones first and second. But Pain and Glory, yeah, is that's my favorite as well. Beautiful, exactly. My my number one, and actually a lot of people I spoke to have the t- same top two, or at least their top five has these top two in it. Certainly mm. mine too. Yes, and they are so Pain and Glory, which is Pedro Almodovar's latest film, and Antonio Banderas's performance in that, in my opinion, is better than the le- last ten Best Actor Oscar winners. Like definitely better than Rami Malek. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, yes. this this performance no, is just. Absolutely magnificent. Might save talking more about the film closer to its release. And Oscars. On, yes. that, on that note about the Oscars, though, I wonder if they'll recognise it because it's a small human scale performance. It doesn't have big outsized, here's my Oscar scene sort of thing. It's it's recognisably real as opposed to be being showy in the way that they tend to like to recognise. So fingers Fair crossed. Call, I hope, I really hope because it's it's the finest performance I've ever seen of his. Mm. And it was it's amazing. just... Pedro back in wonderful, wonderful form, like yep. like his best film. You know, my some of my favourites of his from say twenty years ago. Yep. It's just magnificent, and only a millimetre behind in terms of my favourites is Parasite. Which, I'm the same way, actually. Which we're going to talk yep. about. Which was just uh, I really, really loved it. But just just briefly on my top ten, um, my third uh, was Booksmart, 
Olivia Wilde's Coming out next week. And it was hilarious. And I was in actual pain from laughing so much. Again, it was one of those great joys. It was a late edition and it just fit in nicely, managed to to squeeze it in. And it was just, I think I saw it between, I think it was a three-film day. I saw it between a few things. Anyway, it was just joyous. The audience was going crazy. It was such a wonderful experience. Uh, A couple of others, a lot of documentaries as well, but I loved the final quarter. It was magnificent, and I'm not by no means a someone interested in sport, really. And I just saw it because I admire Adam Goods. And I really regret missing that, actually. It, well, I'm pleased yeah. to say it's, it's getting a free to air. Yeah, it's going to be on Channel Ten. Nice um, television Sorry. release, and it's actually being um, sent out to all, I believe, primary schools, maybe high schools too. It is. If we didn't, I mean, everybody should already know how abhorrent racism is, but. I'm hoping that some of those imbeciles who do the booing might watch it and wake up to themselves because, anyway, it was just an absolutely brilliant film and, again, not knowing really anything about the rules in sport. There was a lot of sport footage, but it was done in such a way that someone like me who doesn't know sports rules still could follow. And I think if you were a big AFL head, you wouldn't find it patronising. It wasn't sort of going over stuff you knew. It was just telling you about this story because sport is the background to the whole human story and I already admired Goods but I admire him even more and I just can't believe how he has to had to and still has to cope with uh, cop such terrible um, uh, terrible fa- you know terrible behaviour from idiot people I was so. pretty to understand that in the documentary there's also a documentary that's premiering at MIF the opening night film yes. which will be covering I'm looking forward to seeing it and I love Stan Grant He's, his interviews are always so insightful and I think as a That'll be a great team. I'm really looking forward to seeing that one. Uh, some others, um, Ken Loach destroyed me again, as he always does, with Sorry We Missed You. That was really harrowing, but, you know, in a great way. Uh, more, more documentaries. One Child Nation about the... Um, really good. One, one, yeah, the One Child Policy in China. Very, quite harrowing. Uh, Varga by Agnes, I loved. So and, warm, right? Yeah, beautiful. And obviously, given given the loss of her this year, you know, a couple of months ago, that's a, it was even sadder. But yeah. beautiful and joyous as... Everything is. Mm. Um, she, everything hers. she touches. Yeah. She's just such a humane filmmaker, I think. Exactly. And uh, the souvenir, I, I quite enjoyed. I do grant it's not for everyone. And there's one particular character who is just so painful. He's meant to be, but that it is actually difficult to even sit through watching him. But that was um, the intention. I thought that was really good. Mm. Portrait of a Lady on Fire that Glenn mentioned earlier was my number nine. And rounding out my ten was another Australian documentary, Mystify. Which I thought was oh, wonderful. Sorry, the, I this. The yeah, sorry story. we missed you. <laughs> you guys saw it? I didn't see well, uh, Mr. Michael Hutchins. Um, I did not expect it would be so good. It was it was really great, and it took me back to whatever twenty years ago, whenever it happened. And it was one of those documentaries that had uh, all archival footage, so you were really back in the nineties. It wasn't like you uh, you didn't get pushed into the future by seeing what somebody looked like now. So you saw Kylie Minogue looking about 12. Right. You saw everybody very young and a lot of voiceovers. It was great. Really loved it. Yeah, it's, interesting. it's in cinemas, I think, early July. So nice. Yeah, as yeah, is um, another uh, archival documentary, Apollo 11, which we're going to right. talk about in some weeks. Interesting. Uh, there's so many of them hitting at the moment. Yes. With, you've got two in your top ten of the festival. Yes, and the, I've got a few Australian documentaries right. too, so yeah. quite a mix. Two Australian archival do- footage documentaries. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and I didn't even... Festival trends. And nothing was <laughs> deliberate, but I just looked and went, oh, I actually have five by women and five five by men, and I actually have... 
I think, uh, three or four English language. And so it's quite a mix, actually, and that's just how it worked out. So, yeah. Nice. Thank you. I'm, I'm really, it's just, it's still nice to salivate in what the festival was and <laughs> that we're still like it's good digesting films so yeah. after. I think it's good and important that we're having these conversations now so that all these memories don't disappear because <laughs> it becomes hard to, oh, well, how many movies did I see again? What was that film? If yeah. you don't keep talking about them, that's why the social aspect of the festival is so important. It's either like that'll cover Men in Black and Dark Phoenix, which we haven't mm. done. Yeah, so. Which is great. I'm so happy that we just skipped over just, them just, because they were so non-existent. Well, no one else saw Dark Phoenix, so why should we? <laughs> Damn straight. <laughs> I know. No one else saw Men in Black either, I think. so. Yeah, true. But guys, one thing on memory, though. How many times did you get to midnight or 11.30 at the festival hub and someone says, what did you see today? And you literally just walked out of a film. And it doesn't mean the film was unforgettable. It's just your brain was mush. Yeah, and you right. can't name it's what such, you just saw. Because normally, yeah. it's yeah. such an emotional overload yeah. and so many of quality are yeah. packed in the best films and fairly the worst films I've seen this year are at the Sydney Festival and some of them I That's saw right. in a matter of 24 hours. Yes. It's but you don't have you no don't, absorption time. No, no, I think most people when they see a film in a social setting you, you watch the film and then you go and have lunch or dinner or drink and you talk it over and mm. then you go home and you think about it and you might think about when you're going to work the next day or you know it stays in your mind for a while. At the film festival, you follow up a, a great film with another one and another one and another one. And, and you're, you and you're to rushing take, to get to it, yeah. which is the difference. There's so no time you, to just yeah. absorb. It's overload. You need saw. to take time out to think and talk about them. Which we've done now this weekend, yeah. hopefully. Um, we will be seeing Parasite. I will be seeing Parasite again when it hits cinemas. Not tomorrow, but I'm going to give it a couple of weeks. But... I really want to because it was one of my favorite. Actually, it was my favorite from the festival. And it was one of those where was, I'm glad it was the last one I saw for several hours <laughs> because and I had a space. Break. It deserved a break. And I'm, I think we're all so keen to talk about this because it is in a lot of people's top five, certainly one or two. It's going to be a lot of uh, people's favorite film of the year. Um, it's if a, they it's possibly choose mine. to see it, that's that's probably a lot of people problem. are going to see it. It's going to I be huge. So. I think it's going to be huge. I, hope I think so. it has a crossover appeal. I think it's it's a mainstream, accessible film. Chris called it here, guys. And you know what I think made it even particularly special? In its own right, it's a magnificent film. But seeing it as I did on a Saturday night, I think it was, or a weekend night at mm. the State Theatre yeah. in a special presentation where we had the honour of having director Bong there. Sydney Film Prize and Palm Door and winner. I was, yeah. And I was so pleased that he won because, like I said, any of those, my two favourites, I would have been thrilled. And it's already great, but seeing it with an audience, and a lot of the audience was his, a lot of the Australian uh, Korean community are huge fans. Mm. And there were a, a lot of um, lot of his um, diehard fans were there, so it was a beautiful atmosphere. So it was already a great film on one of the best nights of the festival, seeing it with a number of friends as well. It just mm. made it such a joyous experience. There's something to be yeah. said for the way that the Sydney Film Festival gives um, films that would otherwise have a small release. You'd get to see it in a shoebox in Dendi Newtown. Um, instead, they get given the kind of presentation they deserve in the State Theatre. As did the excellent follow-up talk at the Hub with uh, uh, Director Bong, which was absolutely packed out. But also, yeah. I've got to note, on the final night, his speech, so gracious, so giving... And I think it felt rewarding to be able to for Sydney to be able to give this prize to him. He was so happy. He, li- he likes the city a lot, and it does mean something for him to get the prize from this festival, where he's been coming to for years and years. Go back to Snowpiercer before then. Yeah. Um. For those who are playing, I think the first time he came to Sydney was for Okja, actually, for the last last. And that uh, was a surprise, oh, if was, I recall, yeah, when he yeah. was there. I think oh, they. I didn't know I that he was coming, and then he was brought out. I think. Sorry. 
No, he wasn't there for Snowpiercer, as far as I I saw it, and there was no Bong Joon Ho. Uh, yeah, I would have I, 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 I would have lost my mind. Him. Yeah, you would have interviewed I, him. I, I would have lost then. my mind if he if he turned out for Snowpiercer, and I don't recall that happening. So well, maybe I've been you, flashed by the international branch of the Men in Black. You're not pals, right, Chris? You remember remember you, so you know. Yeah, he remembered me. You you know, yay! When I yeah, that was my fanboy moment. I went into the interview, and he's like, "Ah, we've spoken before." What do I admire about him? Admire about him? Not only is he a magnificent filmmaker, clearly, he's such a delightful person. He's got this cheeky glint yes, in his eye. Yeah. He's really cheeky. His films and are cheeky. It comes yeah. out in this movie too. Absolutely. Yes, it's such exactly. a strange, weird genre fusion yes. where I love how the horror moments are actually the funniest moments, at least there were for me. And he plays those he's been Yeah, he's, he's been doing that for a while. For those playing at home, uh, we're going to go into spoiler discussion of Parasite in our podcast. Uh, so if you... Uh, have seen the film already, then we'll be able to go much more in depth into it. Yeah. Bong Jun Ho has been stressing to reviewers not to spoil the twists and turns. Is a very carefully written letter to that effect, saying, "Here's what we would like you to discuss. Um, to respect his wishes, I will describe how the film how it has been articulated in the letter. It is a Korean comedy." drama a family, family film family film with heist and other elements mm. about a family who are a bit down and out living a little bit underground uh, you just see the top of the house is like a window pane onto the street corner mm. and they're trying to make ends meet folding pizza boxes and one gets a gig working as a tutor for a mirror yet much more wealthy and nuclear family called the parks the other rest of the family also intends on employment uh, look at this family and think, hmm, how can we leverage this? And things spiral mm. from there. We won't be, and as there, it's in four acts, you can't really discuss the last two acts without spoilers. We won't be going into those here. It is a family film, not in the sense that it's for kids, but in that, you know, it's an exploration of family <laughs> yeah, units. It's, it's a literally, yes. literally yeah. a family film. Like, more like, families. Yeah, more like something like Shoplifters, though not not quite it's as heartwarming. Better than Shoplifters, I would say. It's different to Shoplifters. It, it's a, I think it's a film about contrasts. So mm. it's it's the contrast between the rich and the poor family and what what I love about it and what so many people love about this film is there are no clear villains and uh, there's not like the good guys and the bad guys here and mm. you're actually rooting for who are, you know, the criminals mm. and what it's really – and they're actually both close families in different ways Yeah, and – I guess what I love about the poorer family, for want of a better word, is that how resourceful they are. Yes. So, you know, things like you said, they're clear. You know, they're um, they've got these pizza boxes, as you mentioned, stacked the behind Wi-Fi. them. Yeah, yeah, and they're they're they're, they're um, folding these pizza, bo- folding them pretty crappily, actually, that they get docked. But they're they're folding them, and then yeah, they're standing on was it the bathtub or something to get the free Wi-Fi. And even when the uh, street exterminators come past, the dad says, "Open the window so we get free extermination." Obviously, not caring about the pizza boxes getting contaminated, and you know, printing out fake degrees. And mm. it's they're really it's, you admire how resourceful they are, and they really love each other, the family. The way that they work together, and a lot of the film follows. a plan being formulated and a plan coming together makes me think this in a lot of ways this is a heist film it functions like a heist film with those sorts of montages of like building the the machine that allows us to break into the bank except it's been brought down it's ingenious in the way that's been brought down to this really small scale of just you know essentially it's set in a house but the way that beautiful, beautiful, amazingly oh, designed the house is just divine. But on yes. the matter yeah. of the house, actually, of the matter of the, the family, I didn't really. It took some time to reflect on this, but the fact is, this film draws distinctions between how the two families operate. In that, the 
them being quite poor shows how it brings them together. And the family who are quite wealthy, attention is drawn to how they are apart in so many senses mm. internally and how this family and how a divisive factor is the wealth they have. Well, um, I'm right at the famous seat at the Citizen Kane table, which is slowly going <laughs> further and further apart. Well, it's interesting how, as we were saying before, you root for the family that are actually the criminals um, and the film sort of we can talk about this more in the spoiler podcast but it explores the way that um, you know your social milieu determines how nice you are essentially you know the the rich family appear to be the nice family on the surface but there's a there's a darkness to them the much more upfront you know um, desperate poor family um, seem more real but also, I feel that's part of social politics, right? I mean, when you're rich, you can afford to be nice. I mean, yeah, that's, there's that's, actually that's, a line to that effect that, yes. in the film. There's, yeah, there is that line. But it's more of that, and I love how class disparity isn't treated as binary or singular. Yeah. Yes. There are different ways that discrimination becomes apparent and manifests itself. Some are very blatant and certainly some are very subtle. And to some of the subtle ones that are more powerful, which lead to what are the most confronting moments in a literal sense yeah. um, at the, towards the end of the movie. Let's, let's not talk yeah. about that stuff even, even in the... Well, <laughs> not, we've, we've got, we're running out of time. We're running out of time, yes. <laughs> it's not Ken Loach is what I'm trying to say. We'll talk about that. I yeah. think it would have been just too easy to make the rich family the bad guy. And that's yeah. what's so great about it is they're not they're not evil. No, they're it's, not. It would have been yeah. yeah it uh, would have been so, so easy. Many, and he and director Bong didn't do that. Look, made it more the, interesting, and it's just riveting. Yeah. So yeah, I agree. So many of the films we saw at the festival. Um, I mean, the, making a broad kind of um, comparison here, that I saw this kind of crude approach to making a feminist film by. You know, all the female characters are brilliant, and all the male characters are evil or idiots. In a lot of movies, I saw, um, it's it's that kind of dumb screenwriting reductionism. Like you can criticize the way that the rich operate without making them all into horrible people. Yep. You know, Bong Joon Ho trusts that we will are able to read his narratives, and that um, you know. The subtleties can be revealed over time, and I think one of the way that was one of the ways that was achieved was by the mix of genres. Like the fact that it wasn't just a heist movie; it doesn't it wasn't just an upstairs downstairs rich and poor movie, comedy horror. You know, we had so many elements, and I think those and this and what I also loved is the way that we switched back and forward between the genres. And it wasn't in a jarring way. It actually just worked no. so perfectly. I could have watched. I could have had another hour and still been seamless. riveted. And this was, was strangely because the film could have ended after the third or fourth act, yes. but it continues and it continues to great effect. Yes, um, but, absolutely. Yeah. Bong Joon Ho realizes how comedy is often right at the doorstop of horror. You know, because you're put into that place when there's a, the rug is pulled out from beneath you, where. This, this something that's slightly funny can hit really hard or vice versa. Yeah. He puts you he often takes you to an emotional plane and then th- you know while you're coasting there just throws something else there. He really is about getting you vulnerable. And man, he's so good with the camera. Um we learned oh, in the stunning. yeah, that in the talk he gave that this uh the way that it's constrained to a house came from it being initially conceived as of as a play but of course Bong Joon-ho is way too much of a cinematic thinker and had to make this as a film instead the way that he explores the space upstairs downstairs compartments the camera movements um the blocking of people around the frame and the way that he uses um just small bits of sound 
it's so cinematic. Like the sound that the characters make moving around is used to create incredible suspense. It's so well directed. I agree entirely. Yeah. So that is Parasite. We will be talking about it in much more detail on our podcast. Go see it. It is one, if not, in my, certainly in my view, the best film of the year. It is in cinemas tomorrow, courtesy of Mad Men Entertainment. The next film we we're talking about in the last few minutes on the show, and certainly into the podcast, is Yesterday, which is also in cinemas tomorrow. It is the new film from Danny Boyle. He did this instead of making the James Bond movie. It is written by Richard. No, he Kirk. didn't. He made <laughs> well, this before. Before making the James Bond movie. He made it... Did, is that... Yeah. Oh. Yeah, he's still yeah. making the Bond film. No, he's uh, not no, making he's, the no, Bond film. No, he's not. Film. Okay. But he... Yeah, this was okay. shot prior to when he might have made oh, a James uh, Bond movie. I, I would like to see a Danny, James, Danny Boyle James Bond movie. More Alas, than this? We got this. Um, it, was, it was definitely written by Richard Curtis. We don't know what he's been doing for the past few months. <laughs> and it is starring Himesh Patel and Lily James. It is about a young man played by Himesh Patel who, due to a worldwide blackout accident, becomes the only person in the world to remember anything about the Beatles. An aspiring, non successful musician, songwriter, he decides, if I can pass off Let It Be as my own, I'm damn well going to do it. And things spiral from there as he starts to get noticed with the excellent lyricisms of John, Paul, George, and Ringo. This joined a very long line of very inoffensive Sydney Film Festival closing night flicks. Certainly it played following a director Bong getting the Sydney Film Prize. Lisa, what did we think of yesterday? It was a huge disappointment for me. It was a really great idea. We talked in the beginning of the podcast about a couple of films that had great ideas that could have been a, a short story, a short film. I think this could have been a great short film. It's a really clever idea, but I think it's a wasted idea because it was badly executed. I think it was half the film was padding. There was a ridiculous, unnecessarily um, a sort of love story that really we didn't need. There was uh, drama manufactured that didn't need to be there to make people who'd been getting on for 20 years suddenly start fighting with each other. There are a couple of little clever bits which I can go into, but overall it was just a huge disappointment to me. And this is coming from someone who I went in with an open mind about it. I love the Beatles. I was looking forward to... Hearing, you know, the trailer looked great, looked really interesting, huge disappointment to me. What did you hate about it? Well, everything. I mean, there's, there was a lot of things that really frustrated me too. Uh, I liked, I'll say what I liked about the film because I know we're going to talk about its attractions in quite some detail. The world building I enjoyed. Um, some of the jukebox style, I wish they'd played some more diverse Beatles hits, but certainly some of the greatest hits and a few obscure hits, fine. What got me about this, and it was the biggest bugbear, and I only realized it afterwards though, it's the casting. Himesh Patel was fine. He's a decent singer. Sure, it draws attention to the fact that how good the lyricisms of the Beatles are. But in a film with Lily James, why not cast her in the lead role? There's something gender specific about the lead role. You're right. She's the best performer. Why not put her there? Um, she would have. She's a lot more charming. She had this great line, which shouts out, "Not all the crisps, but someone's trying to steal all the crisps." And it's the funniest moment of the film. It's incidental. It's nothing to do with the actual plot. Why wasn't she front and center? Yeah, I mean, why does Himesh Patel of all people is the person remembering Beatle lyrics? It just doesn't make any sense. Well, that's I he's think the main character. The suspension of know, disbelief, but also Himesh Patel. There's a certain thing <laughs> we, we just have to. I guess we have to go with that to believe the film. So it, my objections aren't about the logic of, oh, as if this could happen. I, I'm not, I understand there's a suspension of disbelief for that. It's just, as I said, the execution of it and padding with, you know, ridiculous stuff. And look, with the world building, just one short thing, and, and this is no real spoiler because you see this in the trailer, clearly in this world, after he, you know, hits his head, wakes up sort of situation, suddenly the Beatles haven't existed. Now, there's a couple of cute jokes about certain things didn't exist because huh. the Beatles... Yeah, that um, was one of the best jokes. There's a band that's referenced that's a pretty 
sly dig, and it's probably one of the better jokes in the film. So there's something like that. And then, look, there's a few things like that. But then, I know I'm getting pedantic here, but there was one in particular that really got me. Cigarette. Now, I'd be thrilled because I hate smoking if cigarettes didn't exist in the world. But there was a... Um, he asks, someone says they used to smoke and I need a ciggy and someone says, what's a ciggy? So we, we established that cigarettes don't exist in this world. But what makes no sense, something that existed after the Beatles, if that happened, that could not exist if the Beatles hadn't existed. But just in logic... Why would cigarettes of, disappear well, because all, the Beatles aren't here? Yeah, cigarettes were around, I think, in the 1800s and that's the modern version. In ancient times, there were ancient types of pipes and related um, yeah, paraphernalia. Tobacco usage goes back... A yeah. long, long, so long way. it actually made no sense. Even if you believe the premise of suddenly one or a few people in the world don't know that the Beatles existed, that one got me because it was ridiculous, I thought. Um, I think some of them played it for laughs. I think some of them were lousy ones. They could have done a lot more with the world building. I didn't get the cigarette one. There was a couple later that kind of just threw in for the sake of it. I'm pretty sure there's a sly allusion to Stanley Kubrick not existing in this universe, which we'll go on to talk about in the Glenn, podcast because it's a semi Did you tell us thing. that you liked it so we can hear the, the much hyped up argument? I enjoyed it. fight I, I, on I, Film I, Fight I, I will say I had That's fun the in this movie. Here for. And yes, that was after a festival of intense, intense films. So I needed something light, which is why I went into this. So I went, <laughs> And it might have been in the context of that, but I will say I did have a lot of fun watching this. Um. We I'll fight you on that. <laughs> so, so stay tuned next for the Sonic Assassin, and we'll be continuing on the podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and Spotify. If you're listening on the podcast, just keep listening, talking about all things spoilers. Man, 2SER is yesterday. so violent, isn't it? Film Fight Club is followed by the Sonic Assassin. Damn, yeah, it's we, we need to tone this down, management, if you're listening. No, so, Lisa, I want to okay. thank you so much for being on. Uh, Lisa, uh, uh, Lisa Maloof from Limerick Review, and you can find her at, at Lisa Maloof, yes. M-A-L-O-U-F on Twitter. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us and staying with us for the podcast. Thanks for having me. I had fun again, guys. Thank you. It's always good having you on. So this has been Glenn Falkstein, Chris Evans, and Virat Nehru. Stay tuned for the Sonic Success. Have a wonderful night. Enjoy movies. Ciao. Till next time. Welcome back to Film Fight Club. So we are talking all things yesterday, the new Beatles anthology movie. They didn't want to make a Rocket Man or Bohemian Rhapsody. They decided to make this with Himesh Patel, Lily James. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Lisa, you're, you're, you're not a fan of this movie. No. They, uh, no, as I was saying on the, on the live portion, it was just a big disappointment. Look, let me give you an example. I think Kate McKinnon is one of the funniest living humans at the moment, and she is normally hilarious. The fact that she – now, it's not her fault she didn't write her line, you know, write her dialogue, but even she wasn't that funny in it. And I think it's – a film's got to be pretty bad for Kate McKinnon to not be hilarious. I just – yeah, big disappointment. Just the – We'll get into we'll get into a couple of spoilers. Maybe we should do it that way. Yes, uh, we'll get into spoilers in a minute. I feel I feel it's beholden on me to defend this movie because I did come into it off the bat of so many just dramatic, sad movies, and I wanted a bit of a pick me up and a bit of a lift me up. And sure, there's no real conflict or real plot to speak of beside the original premise. But for the most part, aside from misgivings, which we will get into. I had a lot of fun. I'm glad I brought a mate along. I had no problem seeing this film. I had no problem this was playing in the background at home on Kate McKinnon. I feel we can split a performance into two halves. In the first half of the movie, the second half of the movie. In the first half of the movie, she is boring. She's playing the generic lousy manager who has to be in every single one of these. I referred to Bohemian Rhapsody and Rocketman earlier. They are also no exceptions. And she's not allowed to be Kate McKinnon. over the seat in the Iron Man house. She's not even herself. It's just boring. But then when she can improv a little more and it's just her amazing face, 
facial expressions and just being able to do what Kate McKinnon does and improvise just a little bit more. As we saw in Ghostbusters and Saturday Night Live, it gets a lot better. So I like her in the second half of the movie, but in the first half of the movie, it was so generic, especially when they come up to her and them in, what is it, Moscow, and it's just boring. Yeah, dull, 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 dull. Let me, let me ask you this, okay, because I'm really trying to understand what you loved about this film, or not loved, but what you didn't mind about the film. Can One of the problems I had was the love story, for want of a better word, like the boring, filling out um, love story. It just, to me, it didn't justify because they're friends for years. First of all, we're meant to believe that, you know, one's in love with the other for 20 years and the other one doesn't notice. Like that, I just didn't believe that. It was Lily James, come on. Yeah, and, and also there was just... Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. Okay. Lily James was in love with Himesh Patel the, 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 the premise, and he did not notice? Okay, the premise yeah. of this movie, <laughs> and, and this is one of the reasons that the role should have been switched, the premise of this film oh, yeah, that's is what that I thought. Lily James, Lily James <laughs> has been in love with Himesh Patel for 12 years since high school and he has not noticed. That he is the premise of this be. movie. Like, you have to be She's the worst. She's so goddamn beautiful, right? Like, okay, I mean, my, you can't, my, casting I mean, matters. Even as an asexual <laughs> person, it makes no sense to me. Anyway. <laughs> if, if Lily James be cast in the main role, I kind of would have got it. And Humesh Patel, you know, pining off to it. But no, no, yeah, it just uh, yeah. no, didn't buy it. But my objection, it's, <laughs> I not, it the opposite, yeah. it's not anything about the desirability of either actor. It's about... Just as a story, we're meant to believe that someone's best friends and they're that dumb that they didn't notice for 20 years of pining. That I didn't 20 believe. 20 years is a long time. But if it had been like three months, <laughs> maybe just, you could find oh, it. No, but it does take three months for... Oh, wait, we'll get to that in the spoiler discussion. And we are having other, a spoiler yeah, discussion. We haven't... Okay, let's have a cut-off yes, point. Let no, just, let's have a cut-off point for spoilers. Uh, right? Okay, this, is the la- this isn't really a huge... This is just the last thing on that love, love story is it just felt like... Uh, you know the whole, you know, boy gets girl, boy loses girl, all that business. It felt like they've manufactured a problem that didn't exist. So, first of all, we can see, you know, the audience can see, you know, Lily's pining, pining at him, you know, with the doe eyes, you know, all through the film. And then, you know, she finally tells him. And then they, then they have this fight, and then they have to, you know, be apart. And then she asks him. Are we going into? Oh, well, just as a general thing, I'm just, I guess, reiterating how I didn't believe any of any of that story about how of the, of the love story why and would they fight like after she's confessed her love like you know if I was like oh cool you know Lady James cool yep yep okay sorry about that 20 years yep my bad so the last thing I want to touch on before we get into spoilers is the filmmaking style of this movie Danny Boyle is a pretty great director he's made a lot of good films ha. there is he, uh, sure yeah uh, 28 Days Later Train Spotting. I will um, trance, very underrated. However, there is, except for one backwards tracking shot as they're running for Liverpool. Steve Jobs also. Uh, oh, no, that was, was really good. overrated. It was Ooh, good. We, uh, we should uh, fight about that. I'll gladly fight about Steve Jobs. Yeah. And that, that was more film. visually creative. There's this one visually creative shot in this, the backward tracking shot. There's nothing else about this film that is distinctive for a film about the Beatles, which themselves inspired with their own films so many Interesting visual vignettes and approaches yep. to cinema. Why? Why not? Just if you're going to riff off the songs, riff off even across the universe of years back. Riff off help. Riff off all the great video clips they made. Why? Why? Glenn, really... I think you're uh, you're ready for my team here. You're actually. <laughs> Thank you. No, no, but I am. This is I the thing wanna... about Glenn. You're always like, yeah, I liked it, and then it will come time to and it'll be like, yeah, actually. 
<laughs> okay, from now on, I'm going to go for. I'm going to defend All this right. film because I think people should see it. I, I'm, cheer, I want, I'm here movie. to cheer on a fight. All right, are we going into spoilers? Are we doing spoilers? Yes, please. Okay, spoilers. Um, I'll let you start off because I know you have a few of the. For, for, from now on, we should clarify. We are yeah. talking spoiler discussions for yesterday. You have been warned, and at the. 103, that's 103. Minute mark, we will be talking spoiler discussions for Parasite. So if you want to just uh, skip to that, if you're one of the few interested in, you know, you've seen Parasite and you want to see Yesterday, then skip ahead. So Lisa, we're into spoilers discussion. Yesterday. (gasps) Okay. No, we're into spoilers discussion now. Oh. One of the more... Egregious scenes in this film that really, really got me was a real cop out of a of a scene. Okay, basically, anyone would have, you would have seen in the trailer, there is this complete red herring where James Corden is interviewing Jack um, Patel's character, and basically there's this implication. We've got two guys coming in right yes. now who claim they oh. wrote these songs. Oh, it's going to be of course it's going to be the John and yeah, Paul. It's going to be the um. Uh, Ringo, yeah, the surviving Beatles. And, oh, I, um, no, I, I, oh, I thought it, I, I, yeah, watching it, I thought, oh, it's going to be I thought so too. John Lennon and, and well, Paul look, McCartney. That's another like, debate. Uh, actually, it could be, like could still go alive, either way sort of when we yeah. talk about. Ringo needs something to do. Well, oh, yeah, yeah, Paul McCartney. Sorry, yeah. I, I just yeah, realized yeah, dude, that I said dude. they're still alive. Yeah. Because yeah. John Lennon, you know, wouldn't have been assassinated and Paul wouldn't have died with the whole Paul is dead conspiracy, since we all know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. There is, this um, is the thing. Paul we're debating, left the building. Yeah, we're debating with logic a ridiculous world. So I was thinking of it as the surviving Beatles that we know survive now. But again, when we get to our last of the spoilers, that will there is an argument okay. that John may have been one of those people. We'll get to that. But look, this this one that really got me, why I was angry, I actually felt it patronising and offensive to the audience in that it was such a lazy cop-out. Now, you know that trope, that whole, oh, we've painted ourselves into a corner in our script, so let's have a dream sequence. So there is an implication in the trailer that there's real tension because, you know, some Beatles or somebody is going to say, uh, you know, you're a liar. So this whole tension happens and, of course, cop-out, it's a dream. And I just think... It was so yeah, so poorly executed. It was just a – it was like a mean-spirited thing to put in because it was it was distracting us, but it was just lazy. So you keep yep. bringing up – I want to defend this movie, but you keep bringing up the fairly the worst <laughs> things about it. And worse than that, it ends with the scene of the whole Bart Simpson shooting straight from bed <laughs> screaming. And the problem with that scene, I wouldn't have minded if it was there on its own. It is a cop-out. It is a yeah. super narrative ploy. But the problem with this film is that he has there are no consequences really for his massive plagiarism of Beatles work. It's just the premise loosely put around what Richard Curtis wants to do as a traditional guy gets girl, loses girl, gets girl rom com. That's the only real conflict they're in. Yeah. And to that effect, it's such a standard plot. He she's she's interested in him. She he suddenly becomes famous in the space of those again three months. She says, "Okay, I'm sick of this now. I'm going to date this." dweeb but then no because you know he's the guy she's always liked of course we have to go back to him that's interesting and Richard Curtis has perfected the dweeb rom-com with About Time I mean he's basically yeah, About Time is such a, and just, it's beautiful go watch it's about perfect time. Go it's watch perfect about time. The, yeah it's interesting saying that there are no consequences to the actual premise of the film which is I mean this is a high concept film where the premise is what draws you in and 
I saw people uh, online, um, an interesting comment when the trailer came out, saying, you know, this is just the sort of anti-art fantasy where it's not about the actual brilliance of the, you know, the... The, all the practice that goes into being able to write songs like that, the life experience you've had, the passion you have to be poured into creating a musical masterpiece. It's just, oh, what if I had the fame and glory of having made all these songs? I don't think it's songs. making that point at all. And I think the no, reason but, but for the that is, is... If the movie isn't making that point, right? If it's just coasting on the fantasy of what if I got to be the guy who had the Beatles back catalogue and it's, it's all mine. This film doesn't have the backbone for a moral. It's really just... Oh, but wow. it, it, it doesn't. It's, yeah. it's trying to... I feel to, you're on my team here. It, it, this is it, great. No point, this is a great the, fight. But what is wonderful is the scene, and it's one of the other spoilers we're going to get to, where it does show great reverence for the Beatles, but that only happens very late in the piece. Right. Well, when I... Read, How did you like this movie? There's nothing yeah. you said. When I read like, this... I'm happy to talk about what I liked when about I, it. When I read this comment, I thought, <laughs> um, okay... It has to turn around into, um, you know, and that's why you don't like steal a morality people. Tale. A morality tale. It has to, like, at the end, he admit owns up to it, and I'm sorry, I didn't write this, but it doesn't. Well, it it does, it does? and I know it's hard because you're speculating, having not right. seen it. But that's actually another one of the problems I have. It maybe we'll we'll go chronological in the spoilers. I, I think so. Yeah. A, right. So look, look the next. The next spoiler, unless you've got more to say on that, or try and justify that one. But um, the other one that has a very weak payoff is, as we know, in any film, if there's no conflict, there's no interest. You know, if everything coasts along, there's no ups and downs. So we've gone from the the earlier manufactured conflict with the romance that I already talked about. Then there's this whole thing where you see this guy, you know, like this Russian hacker sort of guy, what it seems like at a computer. It's like, oh, is he the nefarious character, you know? Um, and, of course, there's no payoff there. All we, again, we've done our spoiler disclaimer. The big spoiler is that him and then this other woman who'd been, you know, lurking around and watching watching Jack and his behaviour, we find out that these two people aren't there to gotcha spring him. They're there to say thank you for whatever reason that we don't find out they whether they hit their head in that thing as well, in that um the blackout of the world that happened they remember the beatles too so out of the whole world there's meant to be three humans who remember the beatles and what they do is they, they all speak english they come well he's a russian english but yes and okay. she's an english woman <laughs> yes and they come and thank him and give him a hug and say because they're not see the thing is jack's character is musical like he's an aspiring singer songwriter so he can um, recreate the songs for them. So in something that, if you actually think of it, would be quite poignant and distressing, if you were the woman, actually was most interested in the other two who didn't know about the Beatles, their, their backstory would even be more interesting, but we obviously there wasn't time for the film to go into that. But they, um, they are not musical, so they just have a vague memory of it. So they can't even, uh, they can't even sing the songs themselves because they can't sing. So they're thanking him. And, you know, but which was actually for two seconds a lovely moment, but it just wasn't, it just, where it was a weak payoff is, we're led to believe there's going to be some sort of reveal. And then when we found that that's all it was, that they were thanking him, it felt like, again, one of these sort of red herrings when we're led up one way and I just sort of felt a bit insulting to the audience with how dumb it was. Speculating without having read Mm. that, it sounds like it's, a red herring that leads you to believe there'll be consequences and stakes, and then there are there none aren't. in this part. Yeah, in this moment, there are none. All right, but to that point, I actually quite like that section of the film. I liked it because I, I appreciate that storytelling wise, it does have a bit of a weak payoff, but 
it fed into the idea of what we saw sparingly as his increasing paranoia at either being found out either as a lousy musician or as a fraud. I mean, I thought at one point in this movie that suddenly a switch would literally flip and everyone would remember the Beatles and be found out as a fraud. Mm. And that is interesting throughout. I wish he did labored a little bit more on that and had a little more emphasis on that. Certainly would have made that scene a little, had a lot, run with a lot more pathos. And I think the next spoiler you're about to discuss, I think would have allowed it with much more impact instead of just him doing, oh, shucks, he's doing the right thing now. I liked the element of it. Certainly the fact that he had no one to throw this Man. off until the very end of the film meant that you couldn't really relay it or relate it or get it out there. But if they'd gone a little bit more into this is how it's undermining my consciousness and how it's uh, feeding this anxiety, I would have liked that a lot more, but they didn't regretfully. Mm. Man, this concept can go in so many different directions. Like imagine if this guy came out and said... I didn't write these songs. I actually hit my head in a bicycle accident, you know, and you've all forgotten about the greatest band ever. And then he was uh, checked into rehab or an institution. And started just he's, releasing no, no, all this great stuff. Right. While he's And then ranting. it just became an Amy Winehouse documentary. But actually, you know what would have worked better? If he hadn't been as big a superstar as he was, but had a sort of early Ed Sheeran type level of fame. We'll obviously get to talk about Ed Sheeran, but remember, yeah. before Ed is the superstar he is, he was known as, I don't particularly like his songs, but he was known as a good songwriter who had a great local following and people loved to, in small crowds, I remember Adelaide, he had what, uh, when he started touring, had one of his biggest crowds. It was only a couple of thousand people. Like that, I think that sort of level of fame would have been really interesting. He just could have done it to scale. Does yeah. he immediately I, just become a mega no, superstar? No, I, I think uh, we're, pretty for, quickly. we're forgetting the obvious. Montage, montage, montage. Yeah, it wouldn't happen that way. We're forgetting the obvious. What if... I mean, this seems to be the biggest diss to the Beatles, to be honest, because it seems like any person named Jack with a bit of musical sense and an aspiring singer-songwriter level who just knows the right lyrics of all the Beatles' catalog can have the same level of success that the Beatles had. Okay, l- l- let me comment on that. Look, as someone who grew up as a little kid on the Beatles, I I love them. And I will. the one thing I will say is I don't feel that the filmmakers... If anything, you can see they love the Beatles. I really don't think it was done with disrespect. Oh, like yeah. It was clearly done with love of the Beatles. And obviously, they, they had to be agreement with certain rights issues, even though the songs have been sold, you know, all that sort of stuff. So it wasn't mean-spirited in that way in that it was disrespectful. Like, they clearly, as 99% of English people and a lot of the world, you know, really do love the Beatles. And look, I will say there's... Look, as bad as this film was to me, there's one thing it didn't do and I commend that because they did so many other lazy script things, they could have done this other thing, which I'm glad they didn't, which I kept expecting because I thought the film was so crappy, was there was going to be another blackout at the end. He was going to hit his head and then suddenly people were going to remember the Beatles and then it was, you know, like that whole, oh, it was a dream sort of thing. So I thought there was going to be something where so, we reverse the problem that happened. You know, so many of those of films, course, that's Freaky what I Fridays, as well. and, you know, someone hits their head and then the reverse happens yeah. and we go back to the real world. That didn't happen. So, so what happens instead? I'll, well, look, we can talk about, we, maybe we, talk we, about the big... We, we can talk about that. Um, but one point I want to make is that if you are... I appreciate that the filmmakers have a certain reverence to the Beatles. Certainly there is no other group bar maybe Bowie you could do this about. But I, I think I actually counted. Of the 27 number one Elvis hits, Presley? Um, okay, Elvis. Yeah. I, that, 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 that's a pretty El- huge impact. Okay, Elvis, yes. You okay, could also, uh, though you Dylan, it wouldn't happen. And Dylan. And Dylan, and it wouldn't happen for obvious reasons, but Michael Jackson. Yeah, or even James Brown, you know, um, some of the mm, other... But you were getting into... Yeah. yeah, I guess James Brown is 
has that seismic impact, but probably doesn't have the level of celebrity that these other people were talking about. Have. Yeah. But of the 27 number ones, most of them are in there. There's very, and while they do miss a few big ones, like from me to you, um, day tripper, um, there's a very few Beatles hits that I think a real fan would properly get into. Like, like I said earlier, rubber soul, um, there's only two songs from the White Album. If you're a real Beatles fan, you're not listening to the number one in the album. You're listening <laughs> yeah. to the actual albums. Wait. But the thing is with the Beatles, there's an embarrassment of riches. The thing is you've got a couple of hundred songs. So I will say it must be very difficult. When you're doing any film that's going to be based on the music of the Beatles, it's very difficult to narrow it down because no one's going to be happy with the choices. If you give anybody a list of 15 choices, they're probably not going to be any other person's same 15. So I grant that. And they even screwed up Hey Jude, which they make a great joke about in the movie. Incidentally, I'm wondering what sort of deal led to the creation of this film because the Beatles music is infamously the most expensive to license and which is why we don't hear it often in in film and TV. Yeah, doesn't Michael Jackson own much of their catalogue? Well, not anymore. The estate, yeah, well. At one point he did. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'd be curious too, and, and that's why I mentioned that there's a lot of really big ones that are not here. I don't think Yellow Submarine is in here. Uh, they, they show a Yellow Submarine, only, only a prop. But, yes, but, but the actual. Um, I mean, Eleanor Rigby, Let It Be, Hey, Hey, Dude, as they articulated. I've got something on Eleanor. If I can say something on Eleanor Rigby again, as you know, ahead of the film, but there was a cute moment. A little sort of montage going on where it was quite funny from for a minute out of, you know, 90 minutes or 100 minutes or whatever, where Jack is trying to remember the, remember the words of Eleanor Rigby. And um, he's going, oh, you know, uh, picked up the church, buried the church. You know, he's remembering bits of the lyrics and we're seeing all these things played out. So we're seeing Father Mackenzie writing the words of his sermon. We're seeing Eleanor Rigby in the church. And it's actually, that was actually quite cute. And that was the only couple of minutes out of the whole film I yeah. thought was quite cute. I, I, I should qualify my earlier criticism that that actually was a great visual vignette. I will give it to Danny Boyle for that. But otherwise, I, I, no, there was no... It was funny at the beginning when he started to try to remember what the lyrics were. And he's like writing down all the stuff and he's kind of misses about it. But it would have actually been better if there were more songs like Hey Dude where he just screwed it up or what exactly sure. Or if he, well, was a bit of it's a such a naff joke though. Who's going to get Hey Jude it, wrong? It was that was a Ed Sheeran's behest. Um, Ed okay. Sheeran, because in this universe, Ed Sheeran has not heard Let It Be. Yeah. Uh, sorry, has not heard Hey Jude. So he's saying, "Oh, Hey Dude would be better than Hey Jude." And that's actually so, the funniest joke in the film when the couple come up to him at the end and say, "Hey Dude, really?" It's like, "I'm so sorry. It was Ed Sheeran. It wasn't my fault." Oh God, Ed Sheeran. Um, this whole concept is is I know that. You're overthinking it, but um, the concept's strange to me when you're talking about how he immediately reaches this massive level of fame because would the Beatles actually have that big an impact if you just introduced them into a world that's basically the same as today's? I think a lot of probably there'd be a lot of praise for great pop songwriting, but the music has pop music has branched out so much since the Beatles' time that it's really not possible for anything oh, to have that kind of impact it's anymore. It's a love letter to the Beatles. That's what this right. is. It's a jukebox music. Yeah, it, it's not possible for anything to have that kind of impact anymore. And by the sounds of it, a lot of post-Beatles stuff still exists somehow in this universe, even if Oasis doesn't. Oasis, that's, that's so, the band. That was, that was right. quite funny. Um, Oasis, so, Coke, Harry Potter, what were the other... Uh, cigarettes, uh, we cigarettes, said. Um, Stanley Kubrick, I'm going to stick by, was right. not in this universe. There's an image which was too blatantly of Kubrick's to have been plagiarized. It had to be an original the context of this universe. Um, the one where he's taking the photograph of himself in the mirror, uh, which was probably the only subtle thing 
even if I'm reading too much into this in the entire movie, what else was missing? Uh, Coke, we said. Yeah, I think we've covered most uh, cigarettes, as we said earlier. Um, uh, there's a couple of small things. And again, this is hilarious world building. I mean, the Harry Potter joke is great. It's like, wait a minute, I can be J.K. Rowling. Why wasn't there more of this? Why wasn't there little things that were just missing from the environment, from the background? It's the bright situation where you have this really rich tapestry to build on. Surely you could do just a little bit more with this idea. That you just compared yesterday with bright. I think I, I know I know where this is going. Yeah, that was, that was, that was quite a no, non sequitur. The thing about this film is, if you think too you're much... Not doing, you're not doing yourself any favours, Glenn. Like Brett. Um, if you think too much about it, the whole house of cards falls down because if you have the sort of you know philosophy um, butterfly theory effect of what if you know what what begets what, if you you know if you really think about this, if the four be- if it's just that the four Beatles weren't born, if that's actually what happened, then you know oh then Stella McCartney's dresses don't exist if you know if you go two steps down you know like it, all of their descendants don't exist and you know Sean Lennon doesn't exist so. If you can't really think about it too much because it just mm. any of their existence, the non-existence of Lennon may not have just affected music, but whatever else, like someone he met exactly. at art college, their life is different. Yeah, the whole concept yeah. of a world that's basically the same as yeah. the Brian massive- Epstein's life, um, George yeah. Martin's life, like all the Astrid who cut their hair and you know before the Germany trick, no, all that stuff. Yeah, the world um, would, would probably be massively it's, different. It's the, Beatlemania was huge. What's the Star Trek episode where they go back to the 1960s and can't change anything because it would set even to take one person out it would set the whole timeline different? Well, it's, it's not just Star Trek. It's like. General half, Star half Trek, every I don't know, every time travel it's, story ever. Yeah. It's, where, it's, it's where the trope is popularized. Yeah, um, yeah that's – I get it. I get it. Um, are we, are we going to talk about the uh, John Lennon Okay, look, let, let's, let's do that let's for do a bit. Let's do that because that is – Okay, so – is, is that an episode of Star Trek from the 60s really the first time that that, that was done? That's interesting. Or at well, least where it, it was popularized. It's, it, it's where – I can't think of an early example of television where it became just – where the, the, you had to meditate on that concept so much. Oh, it's probably no, no, taken for granted. Twilight Zone is 1959 yeah, to 64. And there's a, quite a few Twilight Zone episodes about uh, uh, somebody not being born or something not happening. And there's, right. there's Ray Bradbury yeah. stories thinking, yeah, that some of them became – Sci-fi yeah. short stories. I would have thought yeah. would have explored but look, that. But I guess yeah, Twilight Zone. Yeah. Me. Sorry, I'm just uh, veering us wildly off topic. Back to the the film. Okay, so the John Lennon. So those those two characters, as we said, the the Russian, not really a hacker, but because he was sort of the guy at the computer who looked a bit dodgy, and the English woman who doesn't have a good singing voice. They hand hand Jack a piece of paper and said, "We did a lot of research to get you know we we." to do this and of course he goes on a journey down a long down a long and winding road and he sees a little sort of cottagey house and this is for two seconds because again I love the Beatles my heart did skip a beat for two seconds we see exactly what 78 year old John Lennon would look like if he were alive so so John Lennon is alive in this universe but just isn't yes and all they do, he doesn't call him John Lennon, he calls him John, but you look at him and if you look at, in 1980 when John died, if he'd kept the same hair and the roughly the same glasses and hadn't changed style. Oh, that's so um, dumb. And, <laughs> oh no, but come on, there's a lot of a lot of middle-aged sort of rocker men who haven't changed their style since 1980, yeah, so. really. Imagine and, if I had the same hair. And, you it know, for a like moment this. it was poignant for a second and I think the casting there... Was, was, it, sp- was it Robert Carlyle? 
Well, no. It looked like him to um, me. Can someone look that up? Maybe. No, no, okay. it was, it was Hold unlisted. On. It was um, unlisted. We, we want to know what actually happens, what actually okay. plays out with so John. So Jack goes, Jack goes and um, visits this man, and and John is like a wise sage giving him some life advice about you know lying and telling the truth. And John's sort of looking at him like, who's this kooky guy? And he, he tells him he needs some mental health assistance. Like They're not mocking. Like he's saying, yeah, he gives yeah, him yeah. a hug and says, you need some help. Yeah. Um, but obviously this is a cathartic moment, and this is the moment where Jack – Jack says, oh, my God, you made it to 78. Like, he's thrilled yeah. that John didn't die. Yeah. And John talks about getting your girl back, like saying, I loved a woman and, you know, talking about and, – and, again, we don't know which of the women in John's life that would he's have been in this universe because, right. you know, he had a couple of wives and many lovers. And yeah. and um, and that's, of course, the impetus to get Ellie uh, – um, Lily's character back. So – and he's just living in this simple – in but, this sort of simple existence, uh, but, but there's no. But he doesn't. Does he play music? Does he? Uh, I no, think there's I a guitar he... in the room, or so. There's something to indicate he's musical, but he's not a musician. No, but I, he's content. Right. I love okay. that scene. I love that scene because, and I just to quote, I can't find the actor who played him. However, I go through the whole cast list, and Anita Armas is in this as a character called Roxanne Uncredited, which is strange. But this whole sequence, it was beautiful. It gave us. I don't believe it was sacrilegious in any way. It gave us an idea of maybe if what would have happened if John Lennon, famous or, other, or otherwise, had gone on post-1980 to live a peaceful and happy life. And he says, I am happy in this. He says, I'm enjoying life. And it was such, in a, in a pretty hectic film, it was such a serene, sincere moment that you don't generally get. You don't get a lot of truly sincere, reverent, instances like that in really big Hollywood fair and I appreciated that for that it was also the only time where you could really feel Jack reckoning with his actions even doesn't face the consequences I feel it was important and that leads to the next sequence in the film which is where he's in front of a big stage and it's the other big spoiler and he decides to say you know what I didn't write any of this I uh, wrote John Paul George and Ringo did it and uh, yeah I'm a fraud and yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, in terms of facing the consequences of his actions, he doesn't. And I don't have a problem with that sequence. It's just Hold that I, wish, okay, they so had, I just wish they had laid it with more of why he would force it, not just in terms of his feelings of guilt, but his anxiety at being caught out. So people, much he, more people don't believe him once he... People of... do believe People believe him that some non-existent just people... Just nothing happens. This is the thing. Yeah. And, and wouldn't you think... He goes you back think to a regular life. Kate That's so stupid. People in reality... Would go and chase and say, oh, who's this John Lennon? Let me find him. Who's this Ringo? Let me yeah, find him. Yeah, and those him. people Let would me, say, yeah. uh, no, we didn't. Yeah. <laughs> and it would be a Britney moment of this guy's losing it Ringo on stage. Ringo was a hairdresser like he was originally going to be, you know. And, yeah, that's, um, that's what yeah. I thought because you know John Lennon is is not a musical person in this in this universe, right? Yeah, so it it, it wouldn't matter. It's stupid. It, 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 it resolves itself like that. This tiny little house on the beach somewhere in you know. Yeah, Dorset. No, that's yeah. That's com- that's completely. So stupid. Even if he admitted, it'd be like you know. Oh well, you know, we met these people and they say and they say he didn't. They didn't. They so didn't do it. So what is he on about? Exactly, it'd be a viral YouTube clip, most likely. Yeah, it'd just be it. like the moment that, like, maybe a few like, screws loose. Actually, you know, you know, catapulting a celebrity to an even bigger level, if anything else. So, star yeah. loses on stage. <laughs> um, yesterday, the one thing we really do need to talk about is Ed Sheeran in this movie because we haven't talked about Ed must Sheeran we, in this film. Look, he's really not a good actor. No, he's not a good actor, and he's not a very good better uh, or musician. worse than in Game of Thrones. Uh, better in Game of Thrones. I think he's <laughs> God. That was no. that was bad. No, that was so bad. We haven't we haven't forgiven. He had to delete his Twitter because of that. But they did actually hark back to that in the Game of Thrones episode when they referred to Eddie from the Lannister army getting his eyebrows singed off by a dragon. 
which I think a lot of people missed. So Ed Sheeran in this film. I'm Thank not a big God Ed I Sheeran fan. <laughs> uh, Castle on a Hill is my one Ed you Sheeran are? song. I really like. I'm said I'm not. Oh, Castle on a Hill is okay. my one Ed Sheeran song. I really like. Uh, he's funny in this though. I appreciate that he has the integrity to take a lot of shots at himself. I love it when I think it's Shape of You is playing in, on his his ringtone on his phone as he answers it. But at the same time. I appreciate that Danny Boyle had the integrity to separately, and I don't know if with Ed's knowledge, take a lot of shots at him. It's pretty self-deprecating. Uh, there's a lot of some of the best moments feature Ed Sheeran for that reason. Also, and one of the things he points out, which really did annoy me, why, oh why, not only would you launch back in the USSR in Moscow, but how would a young, modern Russian crowd be so cool with a song called Back in the USSR? Like... Playing like Ed was right in this regard. Like this, just just because you know the R in USSR wait. doesn't stand for Russia. It, it doesn't work that way. So wait, the Cold War happened in this universe, and everything else is historically the same. The Cold War, well, uh, the Cold well, yeah. War looks like it did happen because you had to, the there is a song called Back in the USSR, and it wasn't apparently too out of context, and it seemed to make sense. Um, they look. The, I I enjoyed it. I don't think it has the staying power of... Take Mo Mir as a comparison point, where... No, um, no, but okay. Take Mo Mir, where it set up enough of a character-based universe so people could continue on to do another film. They never get to see a sequel from this because they've got no basis or even... Call it uh, Tomorrow and then... Yeah. Go to the future, I mean, there's plenty more Beatles songs, more Beatles songs than ABBA songs, God knows. Maybe pick another band. Maybe Tomorrow with Rolling Stones or something. No... Really? No. Or with you? Oh, but will this keep happening? You too? Yeah, I think I think that's 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 the template, isn't it? You just pick one popular band and then you mess with time travel. I think that's the template, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Well, ten, look, there'll be another one in ten years. Look, in defense of this movie, it's there's a lot of it that should make more sense. The casting and so the plotting is off, but for virtue of the Beatles songs being there and some of the execution and just. Being able to like rollick along with someone that as the interesting the good thing about casting Himesh Patel is that he feels like that guy you could just karaoke along with the Beatles to, and that's the appeal of the film. He's ever so polished that he does not relatable, and that is a larger matter what makes this film endearing. Look, we need something with I, like Janis Joplin or Stevie Nicks, and you know, and then you know, a female. I think rock there is star. a Janis Joplin in pre-production. I'm uh, maybe yeah, uh, for, with the what from Thirty Rock. Uh, oh God! <laughs> I, I just remember hearing something about that, but look. I don't know. I'll, I'll fight you on this, Glenn. I just really think it's a pretty average, below average film. Uh, you know, one or two, you know, one minute moments were okay, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, I was yeah pretty disappointed overall. So, so Himesh, sorry, Himesh Patel's character is called Jack. Yes. Oh, okay. So yeah, he's called Jack. <laughs> um, so look, that is. That is yesterday. I would recommend seeing Rocket Man before yesterday. Not only because Elton John is Elton John, also, but the movie Aiden is Gillen just better. and Richard Madden are playing the same person. Pretty in, much. In yes. Bohemian Rhapsody, that's right. Yep. Uh, see Rocket Man before you see yesterday. Yesterday is in cinemas tomorrow. Um, <laughs> yep, yeah, weird thing to say. Uh, so yeah, uh, we should talk about Parasite, the other big film. That is in cinemas tomorrow. We are going to. Are we? Is there anything we want to discuss regarding Parasite? Not spoiler related. Before we do a full blown spoilers discussion, I think we've covered it. We have. Yeah. All right. So from now on, you have been warned. There is a full on spoiler discussion for Parasite. We're going to be discussing all aspects or plot aspects of the film, everything about it in detail. Spoilers. You have been warned. So recap for those who maybe uh, want 
to listen and uh, may not see may listen before they see the film uh, to give you an idea of what happens. Ooh, this is complicated. Okay, <laughs> so the four members of the family take on roles by stealth and by um, in. The other four families lie by either as tutors or as a driver or as a housekeeper. The Park family do not know that the other four people who they they have employed as a driver, housekeeper, and two tutors are members of the same family unit. Except the the son does think they all smell alike. Yes, Yes, right, which comes back in an interesting way later. Uh, At one point, the housekeeper, original housekeeper, comes back and says that I was was really something. The gossip. I I, I was going to explain it all in one breath. There was very Bong Joon Ho of you to gasp in the middle of explaining it. (laughs) So, well, building uh, up tension. There's there's a lot. There's a lot of tension in this movie. So the housekeeper comes back and says, "I've left something behind." Goes down to the basement, reveals a hidden basement within the basement where her husband has been hiding for some years. She's been bringing him. We should actually explain. So the original housekeeper who was displaced by this family comes back. Yes. 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 So, and she because she was dismissed very suddenly, so she had no way to go bring her husband food. The husband's obviously been starving. Uh, she begins to plead with the family of four, saying, "Don't tell anyone." And then she realizes that they are a family unit, and that they that the Parks and her have been conned. Um, she takes a photo of them struggling and threatens to hold them for ransom or threatens to expose them. The family eventually get a hold of the phone, and there's extensive struggle during which both uh, the housekeeper and her husband are um, sent back into the basement. Uh, they are both rendered unconscious um, as a result of her injuries. I understand it is heavily implied that the housekeeper dies as a result of a fall down the stairs. She does. Um, it's she does. not heavily implied. It's, it's like she's The guy goes on a rampage because, so, you know. Yeah, so she does die. Yeah. Um, the following day, when they're having a birthday party for the park's son, um, the young boy in the, in the poorer family goes downstairs with a rock. It is very, it's pretty explicit he's going to kill the two people. Yeah. However, the, um, the man, the, the husband of the former housekeeper, Gets the upper hand, um, uh, crashes the rock on the son's head. It is debatable whether the son dies. I certainly am of the view that he did die in the sequence. That the later stage of the film is a dream sequence. What? What? No. Okay. No. 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 Okay. We have to discuss this. Okay. No. This is a. This is entirely a Birdman style dream sequence. No, it's not. It makes no sense for it to be a dream sequence. Um, he got two rocks to the head. Come on, back, back me up. Two rocks to the head. I just want to go back. No, I agree. That's this is a fault of the film. He, I don't think it's a fault no. Of it's a fault of the film. They, we'll get into that. They depicted a character who should have. He definitely should have died. Yes, but he didn't. It's not if it, it a dream yeah. of who. No, I, I think he is the narrator of the film. Who is yes. it supposed to be a dream of? It is, and I will. It, no, seriously, answer the question. Uh, 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 who is it supposed to be a dream? I, of? I'm answering the question. I am answering right. the question. It is a dream of. I, I, I would compare of the of the son in the who is dead in the immediate moments of his death. In the same way, such a sequence was depicted in Birdman at the end of Eight and a Half, where a character has very explicitly died. Eight and a Half, though, is already at the, in the realm of fantasy on and on throughout the film. I would argue that... that actually, I would argue... I don't, I, don't I don't think Eight and a Half is, is a depiction of a person actually killing himself at the end. I think the whole thing is the whole thing is fantasy in the case of Eight and a Half. Eight and a Half is more about like a symbolic death and rebirth. But that's another oh, film. Oh, I, in the I case of Parrot... But the difference, the difference... Because Eight and a Half ends on a, on a joyous note... And it, it and does parasite. No, it doesn't. And that parasite ends on a very sad note. Well, at least for the son. And, it's and a, the, what, well, the reason, actually, 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 I, I love how we are about, fighting about this movie and not Jun, yesterday. Here's why you're wrong on this. There's actually for it to be a dream sequence. The film already has the reveal of the fantasy 
because it it ends up the point that there is already a dream within. You're calling the whole thing a dream sequence from a dead character, but the purpose of that sequence is the character wishing that he could buy the house. Bong Joon Ho even alluded to this. And working, and his life's mission yeah, now the, is to work towards yes, this. Yes, exactly. Even if it's going to take him five hundred years, which I think Bong, Bong Joon Ho made the point. Like, yeah. My reading on on this was um, that the entire sequence, the, the, the there is a dream within that sequence, and that's the bit of him meeting his father and hugging. But that's not where the movie ends. The movie ends with, "But I'm still here, and I'm devoted." Like that final last shot on his face, and the desperation of he has to work. And I, for me, the meeting, the meaning was immediately clear um, that. Oh, it's so far away. He's not going to be able to get to that. It's if it were a dream sequence, wouldn't it be? And then I get reunited with my dad. Fade out. It's, it was all a fantasy. This also picks up well after the character dies. I think you're bending yourself into mental gymnastics in order to cast a dream sequence from a dead. It doesn't like if you compare it to Aiden Half. Um, I disagree with your reading of Aiden Half, but if you compare it to Aiden Half and Birdman, those pick off immediately after the character dies. Parasite goes on for like five minutes after the rock's dropped on the guy's um, head. So does Birdman. No. And Birdman, the out-the-window thing, it immediately follows I'm on. I'm not talking about the out-the-window thing. I'm talking about the bit on the stage. Birdman and- immediately follows on with that character tied to his perspective. Parasite continues on with the rampage, which happens after the rock's been dropped on the character's head. And Parasite isn't tied to the perspective. It is tied to the, Parasite is tied like- to the perspective. He's tied Parasite's to the tied to the perspective what? in that he's the narrator. I'm just saying that it being his death is like... It doesn't follow the pa- the yeah, pattern actually, of the other films you're talking actually, about. Actually, like if 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 this was a fantasy and if he would have, you know, uh, yeah, if if it was a fantasy, same, then was then his family getting imagined, slaunted also yeah, a dream? Actually, because yeah. that happens after the rock gets struck. Actually, yeah. I don't think that's a, I don't yeah. think that's a dream at all. So but, but why? Saying, so when does the dream of the dead could, character yeah, yeah. T- start ha- taking place after the conclusion exactly. of the film? But like that's the thing. Like it's absurd. He, he can't have predicted from his point of view how his family's fate would have happened that yeah. this other person would have killed his family because he's already dead not right? only that on a thematic level what purpose does it serve to be a dream because it's not if only things could go that way that like i said that already happens within the sequence in the 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 moment showing the son buying the house meeting meeting with the dad and embracing him that's the fantasy bong Jun ho even alluded to this himself he said that at the end um when they were talking about the interview, he he spoke about how there was the ambiguity about whether that is real or not. Um, the the moment, not the entire thing, a dream, but, but the moment where possible. he meets, yeah, whether it's the moment where he meets and embraces his dad. But the film already recontextualizes that, so that you're saying he's a dream where you're saying that he's having a dream where he imagines meeting his dad. But oh, I'm still working. Which already, on a thematic level, that's already clashing with the concept of like the liberation through dreams idea. Because it reverses on the, the liberation you're talking about there. Okay. N- not only that, Birdman and Eight and a Half are both movies that are rooted in fantasy and Parasite isn't. There's no dream sequences or fantasies, unlike those films throughout the entire thing. So it's a pretty uh, elaborate and strange misinterpretation you're going with, but all right. Okay, I'm happy to respond to all that, but Lisa, you had something to say. The way way I see it, there were a couple of, as I said, we had the pleasure of a couple of different Q&As or different interactions where Bong, director Bong spoke, and there was the one at the hub, the the one with the 200 people standing as well as the seats. But on the evening one that I saw, I think it was a Saturday night, there was a very short Q&A after it. I'm not sure if that's the one you went to, Glenn, but in that one, somebody asked him about whether... Could he really? Could he ever buy the house? Mm. And 
the answer wasn't, oh, you know, he's dead or he's not dead. The answer was as if he was alive is really that's up to interpretation. I'm deliberately leaving you some room to think here and saying you, if you want to think of it as a – like the positive could be he works hard for this, but he then told us the next day that that would have been 500 years working at his hourly rate or whatever. Well, but he also talked about it could have been that or – you can look at it as an impossible dream. Yeah. And he that's what he said about it. That was my reading of the film as well, because the way I saw it, what he's narrating as he's narrating the letter to his father. As we see the letter to the father, you see a moment of him meeting the dad, but then suddenly And, the and there's a fade out sure. as yeah, and the yeah, sister's so. dead for sure, some dream. Um and then on, from the fade out there, we then suddenly get an extra addendum where the son says, like, until that day so long and he looks into the camera and it's quite a and there's a sad piano note and a, a, a sad expression on the son's face so to me the point was pretty clear it's sort of saying like that the son is dreaming of this Bong Joon-ho actually said at the Q&A we went to on the Sunday that the end credits song is about is from the has with oh. lyrics written by Bong Joon-ho yeah. is oh, about nice touch, yeah. is about the son the son dreaming of meeting his dad again while he works and when we say the word dream you know, dream has various connotations. I think it's more the aspirational dream rather than a this didn't happen dream. Like, yeah. You know how there's different ways to use the word dream? I think it was more he aspired to in terms of my dream is to work for 500 years to earn the money to to do to buy the house. Yeah. The, for me, the, the reading the, – the big issue with this, this dream thing that's really thrown me for a loop that Glenn's mentioned – is that on a thematic level, no, first of all, the, unlike the other examples Glenn used, the movie isn't priming you to view things in terms of dream and fantasy because that never happens until this moment. Secondly, um, it's that it doesn't serve any thematic purpose. It makes thematically, it makes, you know, it, it makes sense in terms of this is um, that he is wishing that he could meet his dad again. What does it do to the film in terms of what we take from it and what we read for it for that to be a dream? It's it's essentially a, a, just a, a useless complication. So by dream you mean and not true as opposed to an aspiration? As, as in a dead person fantasized the ending of the film, which is apparently what some, how some have read <laughs> the conclusion of Parasite. Okay. Yeah. Hi, everyone. So, all right, there's a number of reasons why I do contend that this is a dream sequence. The... Uh, I appreciate and and will always have reverence for what any director and certainly what someone of Bong Joon-ho's caliber has to say about any film. However, I always take the attitude that regardless of what interpretation they may explicitly say in the film, it is fair, especially for one in something as with so many interpretations and so many points of view as you could intendedly draw from this, that people will fairly and certainly will take many points of view. And certainly those of the production, I would do the same. Um, this is a film that is extremely pr- practical and in, t- in very deliberate in how it um, betrays violence and consequence throughout the entire mm-hmm. film. When a character is kicked down the stairs, yes, it is portrayed. Sorry, Chris, you want to say something? Well, the point I was thinking too is I, I could. I one hundred percent agree with you that the character should be dead. But you've identified a, a flaw with the film, 
and instead you've created the the fantasy that therefore he must have dreamed this after he died instead of going oh yeah kind of weird writing Bong Joon Ho that you had a character have a rock dropped on his head and I don't see that as a whichever of you is right I don't see either of that as a flaw that's fair enough there's no scenario when there's a flaw like that I'm seeing a problem in the film Hmm. this but this is the thing you know great art is there to be interpreted and as we you know yes the director speaks speaks to what their intention is but it's the same way if you look at literature often how often there've been phd's done on on pieces of lit, lit, great literature and then the author said i didn't intend that but that can you yeah. say if somebody gets something out of a film but it's not what was intended is it invalid it, to me the theme is is like I said, the my biggest problem with this, I always think, oh, that's interesting if I hear something like an interesting take on the film that I hadn't considered. For me, the the biggest reason why this you know whole thing being a dream isn't really worth thinking about is because, as I said, it's thematically useless. Like, what does it add to our reading of the film as opposed to seeing um, this as something that's, you know, the dream being his projection of being able to one day meet his dad? You know, the reading that I'm suggesting there, which I think most people will take from the film... Um, though, again, that's irrelevant, really. If we just talk, if every if any interpretation is um, valid, then yeah, I shouldn't I shouldn't have called you know an argument to authority of the masses. Well, the or show whatever. is called Film argument Fight Club. Popularity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah, good yeah. that we're we're fighting on the show for once. This is what yeah. this is what the the crowd look, wants. Look on a but, light on a lighter note, just with with the rock. Can I ask, did anybody think The Rock was going to be a MacGuffin? Because The Rock kept coming up yeah. in the earlier part, yeah. and then I was—I thought it was actually, well, not cute about a death, but it was actually <laughs> clever how I kept thinking, oh, it's the MacGuffin, it's the MacGuffin, and then suddenly it actually was a weapon. Right, I, yeah. liked, I thought I really liked that touch. But the, the point I was trying to make before about the themes is that this argument that the, the dream is the moment where you see him hugging his dad is that is therefore making a thematic point about wealth inequality and how your dreams, um, your, your life, you know, are held at bay because of class differences. It's an expanding on the, on the movie, whereas it's a, essentially we're introducing a, a new theme of fantasy, which also, but which doesn't tie it isn't like a redemptive fantasy because it still ends on the note of but i'm fucked i can't afford this so it's it's a, it's adding a new thematic element into the film at the last minute for what purpose and what does it actually add to the experience but chris you do grant that I grant given that the it, way he mixes couldn't... genres it's not a criticism to think there's a there's a flip or a new genre introduced because no, but... throughout the film the six or seven types of genres clearly um, but but that's apparent. always for apparent purpose. I can't see what what purpose this adds to the film thematically, and I think it actually goes against the idea that he is actually alive and working towards this end. I think that mix is a lot more thematically compelling and in keeping with the ideas that the movie's been exploring for the entire runtime, even as it flicks through all these different genres. Fair enough. Should should we get to some other spoilers? No, no, no. I'd like to respond to the last okay, fifteen minutes of discussion. <laughs> I want to hear Glenn's okay. reply. Okay. okay. So, all right, okay. going back, to complete my earlier point, first of all, this is a film which is very precise in how it depicts violence and how it depicts consequence of violence. A character goes down the stairs, a character, it's not, it's played as a bit of a laugh, however, a character does stuff the consequence of character dies as a result not immediately but they do die um whenever when a character is has been under stairs for several days they are more nourished and they're not just suddenly up and about Mm. um when a character is stabbed at the end of the film it's not in the sight oh they're okay no they got stabbed in a vital organ 
they died. When someone, there's a consistency to this in not just this film, but in all of his films. I would cite Snowpiercer as well to that effect. It's not like Roadrunner get, comes no. back yeah, up yeah, again no. after being hit. Yeah. In this, we see twice. Um, the first time, we don't actually see it happen. He drops a very heavy rock, the weight of which is established throughout the entire film on his head. The second time, we don't just see him drop it on his head. We see him hurl it at the guy's head. We see his brains go splash. We don't know. We actually don't. Uh, we see, we see I've seen the film twice. We, we see, see a lot of blood coming out of him. We don't see his brains. His head doesn't cave in. Yeah. Okay. We see we see blood go everywhere. Fine. Yeah. I don't accept that we're in a film that has been so sorry, in a film that has been so consistent in its approach to violence that a director of this caliber would suddenly include this, if not to make the point that this character is dead, to the point of the dreamlike nature of the final sequence, the fact that it my view that it was a dream underlays the point, underlays the tragedy of just how sad it is, not only the situation these characters are in, but that the the idea of them being able to afford this house isn't so much an aspiration, but a dream in itself. He's drawing a parallel with the want and desire. And that is that is what is, makes it so poignant. It wouldn't be poignant but for that. And if he were, another, going back to the previous point, if you were to survive this, I appreciate in extreme circumstances you could survive something like this, but it would not be with a little bandage about the head and you're up in a couple of weeks. I don't accept that. In terms of the different fantasy... Sorry, Chris, go ahead. No, no, I I spoke for a long time, so I'm willing to... um, I'll I'll hold that for later. All right, so in, in, in terms of the jump between genres, this film plays far more fast and looser genres... Uh, than basically any other film, any other film I saw at the City Film Festival, and any other film I've seen this year, there are quicker flips between genres in the most in the remainder of this film than there are towards the very end. I don't think it's so much of a flip from genre, even at that. I think it's going towards drama itself, which is what it's the mainstay of the f- film's themes. Um, I okay. At, yeah, this this point I do want to um, come in on that. It's not that I think that it's so outrageous that um, Bong Joon Ho is that um, would you know could hypothetically in a film he's written um, throw in the these kind of surprises, but um, like I mean like a flip into fantasy for example. It's just that the the linchpin of this entire argument seems to be this must be a fantasy because the character would have died. I agree the character would have died, but I can't see it. Yeah. Um, see, and, I, I, and the thing is, when we think about a fantasy sequence, we think about like the contrast between, you know, what um, what is and what we want to be. But going back to the point I had before, this sequence, I agree there is there is something dreamlike about it because I think the film does suggest that the meeting with his father is a dream because it cuts from that to like the yearning face and 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 because there's the and this is uh visualizing a letter that's being read out i think it we are you seeing that what he is dreaming of as he writes this um so absolutely there are dreamlike aspects and to it and absolutely it, it it's about the unattainable reality but it goes against the idea of being a post death fantasy because it is it cuts back to but this is the sad situation we are left with in the final shot and in the character's ultimate situation. Yeah. All right. Um, to the point of um, the Birdman and in the half comparison, I actually would draw a parallel with those films because 
you, particularly with Eight and a Half, you don't actually there isn't a direct stream of consciousness between the violent act in either of those films and the subsequent, much more explicitly dreamlike sequence. Certainly, you can I think it, it will be more universally accepted that the end scene in Birdman is a dream sequence. I will contend that the end scene in Eight and a Half is a dream sequence. I certainly think this would have inspired the suicide that. scene. You mean? Yeah, yeah. Not, yes, the, yes. not the very final scene. Yeah, not the very final sequence. Yeah, but yeah. It, that starts with the shot of everyone the dancing around. About. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although, but although before that fantasy uh, dance sequence in Eight and a Half ends, we have a scene that could also be real, which could also recontextualize the suicide as as, a, as metaphorical. Where there's the guy the press conference where, is real, but after the press conference, there's a, a, a shot, shot of you know it's a shame the film couldn't be made before the fantastical, obviously a dream dance stuff happens. There's Guido and um, one of the uh, yeah one of, uh, d- yeah. D- 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 so there's kind definitely the room to interpret the the suicide as metaphorical, as in he just cancelled the film within that. Just throwing I'll, that out there. Th- because it doesn't immediately go into fantasy. It go, cuts to something that could be interpreted as recontextualizing. Obviously, Aiden Half is very dreamlike and open to interpretation. Yeah, just putting it out so there. Than, um, much more so than this one, Venice. Hmm. Oh, this, and this is one of the reasons the film will be so good. It's because... I mean, we're just talking about one scene. Mm. We've just been talking about... And we even got to the bonkers nuts end of the movie. Oh, where... There was no disagreement <laughs> among the four of us here and the countless others who saw it at the festival that it is a brilliant film. Yeah. Well, yeah. actually... Aside any, any, any it's, disagreements it's, it's on... I did, when we were doing this podcast, want to talk about The Rock moment, but I didn't expect this is the way we'd be talking about it. The Rock... Because you Look, raised the point of the MacGuffin. Mm. And it... it <sighs> I, they try to shoehorn it in a little bit Because when it arrived wrapped up film. at the beginning, I was like, what the hell's going yeah. on here? But Look, yeah. this rock, this 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 will be apparent, this will be yes. evident, this will be symbolic at some point it's a, it's, in the movie. Yeah. I actually, look, oh, again, how metaphorical, as the characters again, say. Again, I don't know how much I'm reading, uh, but I thought it was a nod to Hitchcock of, I thought, here we are, here's our McGuffin, you know, this is our little nod. That's what I thought it was. Yeah. But, you know, I may be, but whether I'm right or wrong on that, I think, it, honestly, the film's still, you know, magnificent. I think that rock was there just to mess with expectations. That you know, the, the character they introduced this think rock. Nothing's going to come of it. Yeah. In the last what twelve minutes or something. Yeah. Suddenly, yeah. Yeah, we introduce a rock, yeah. and the um, characters comment that it's metaphorical, and then it just ends up being something. Used I to think our conclusion is: well, anybody listening to this part of the podcast uh, has already seen it. We hope. Yeah. But. Yeah, basically, we, we no, all recommend no. we all recommend the film, and we want everyone to look, see it a second time or a third. Yeah, look, the the my one criticism of the film um, is that, and, and this is a minor criticism, really. Um, I think the film's brilliant, but I, I think it's a little. I don't know. There's something I think a little bit um, mechanical about the way that, um, like, like perhaps it's just a little bit too over over precise if that makes sense into um overly you know like the gear like it's so tight that that can become an issue um but i viewed the rock moment as being um like a moment that reveals too much kind of the constructed nature of the film because it's the moment that as i see it because i don't view the character as having died um i've thought the rock being dropped on the sun's head is a moment designed to create a shock. Um, oh, there are a number of moments like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. But it's the moment where I, I think the film stepped too far in the pursuit of a shock. 
because it wasn't it didn't follow through on the actual consequences of that being the character dying. That's my that's my take. Okay, on it. I, I disagree, but but yeah. Um, pu- putting aside whether it was a dream or not, uh, purely in terms of the practical machinations of the plot, I would absolutely believe that that character would do that at that exact time. You mean so, the the rock being dropped in him? Yeah. Oh, I buy it as so, I buy so it that, as well. That didn't bother no, me. No, no, I buy it as well. It's just because I don't think that it was a dream sequence. I see it as, uh, you know, too much constructed for for the sake of a shock for to not actually follow through on that. Yeah, um, my yeah. my one flaw with the film is that, and I, I know we've discussed this privately. It, ever so many movies hinge on an idea of one character on part of a piece of information or one minor element of the plot. In this one, uh, we are expected to believe that the architect who built the house would not tell the people who bought the house, uh, if only for the value of the house's sake, that there's a giant basement beneath it. Now the explanation provided the city was too embarrassed that now there's no threat now with less there's less of a threat with the north supposedly so we have no reason for this bunker i was just embarrassed about it i don't buy it you're right it makes no sense i don't buy it he, they would have they would have told them they would have said we're charging you an extra x thousand dollars and uh, it's because of this bunker which you're never going to use good luck with it i i just don't buy it actually that hadn't i hadn't even i hadn't even questioned that sort of the film is so tight that you don't question things, yeah, right? Yeah, again, I was just so riveted. It didn't. It actually washed over me that I didn't think of that as a problem yeah, to even Glenn, analyze. Glenn yeah. thought of this after we saw the film, right. because but in the moment, I wasn't questioning it either. Oh no, it didn't think, bother me in the moment either. Yeah, but it's just it's one of those to get things caught up in because there's this so many explanations. So well directed. But well, it's I'll, not just as well. Oh, sorry. I will say one thing is you know how the husband of the um sorry I don't know the character name of the uh, housekeeper how he was sort of. The previous owner was like a god to him. Yeah. And I got the impression he was a bit of a cult figure anyway, mm. that perhaps, I mean, if you were, I hadn't questioned at the time, but if they were talking about his motivations and he was a bit of an eccentric, it could have, it could be quite believable to say, yes, this eccentric would have the weird bunker that not even the wife or the, mm. or the, um, sale or the real estate agent knew about. Yeah. Like I did see that he was sort of, yeah, but an eccentric. The thing is, the, the, but yeah, it, Potentially, mm. but as it is, you know, I, it could also be a design feature of the house. Like, and by the way, guess what? I've, you, you can store all this stuff down here. Yeah, and, uh, and there's yeah. electricity installed to run to this bunker. Yeah. So I, yeah, I agree with Glenn. That doesn't really make any sense. Um, we and know, the plot hinges on it, so it's kind of a shame. It's a bit of annoying. We know at least you have to pop off. So at least we want to thank you so much for coming on for Fight Club. We'll have you on again, probably if not before, for Pain and Glory. Right. When El Modavar. Speak here returns. returns. Um, and you can find Lisa at Limerick Review and at Lisa Maloof, that's M A L O U F, on Twitter. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And thanks for having me, guys. I had a great time. Thanks for Cheers. being here. Yeah. So, continuing on from Parasite, it's always great to have Lisa on the show. Yeah. Um, hopefully, we'll get to have her on the show again soon. She's great. Um, but one of the things that, you know, talking about the rock moment, it, this led me to questioning. Why is the son the main character of the film instead of the uh, go- the daughter who gets killed? Um, f- for the record, I can. It's much more easy for me to believe that you can be stabbed and survive than you can have you can be smashed with a rock and then have the rock dropped on your head and survive. <laughs> but going further, um, that's what she I was a better character. Yeah, yeah, she's more interesting. It was funnier the scene where she's trying to convince about the her, her being this psychology one hundred and one with the mother and the kids' art was gold. That's right. She yeah. she was really interesting. So I wonder why. 
but actually you you bring up an interesting point because when i saw the mother being alive and the son being alive i expected the daughter to be alive as well yeah and i just thought because it's, it's crazy going to be, that it's going to be a family tragic comedy where the dad is now you know in this impossible situation and now the family has to work as a family to get him out which uh, would make more that sense that is interesting yeah. There is there is one reason why I accept it as plausible in the context of how these families are articulated as to why the son is the main character. And that is because um, he is the first character who ingratiates himself in the family. Uh, he does so because the young daughter has a crush on him in large respect. She says, oh, I have the greatest tutor ever. And the daughter comes following that and manages to convince the mom that not only is she a great tutor, but she convinces her with her, again, Psychology 101. I find it more believable that the son would be able to endear himself to the parents under these circumstances than the daughter, necessarily. Perhaps the daughter, yeah, the daughter is a a more harsh-edged character. So I feel it's more plausible that the son would have recommended the daughter and vice versa. So I'm going to give them that. The daughter was the most cunning yeah. But, but also the most cunning and genuinely, I guess, non-empathetic character in the daughter meets the worst fate. I mean, mm. she gets, you know, killed in a random act of violence. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you can you can argue that the other dad in the family had it coming because he did show some kind of you know unredemptive features in how. Did he? Really? I, I guess so. Yeah. In, oh in the, no. Wait, wait. I guess in some kind of statements he was making. So you already had your. I guess sympathies against him in some sense, hmm. and the way that he was treating, uh, you know, he always had his, you know, especially those uh, teacup moments were interesting. How he was testing the driving skills of the other father as well in those moments where he would just keep a teacup and make sure that how he's taking the turns and everything, hmm. while he was trying to be all nice, you know, and I, super nice to him at the same time, I, I think have, and still talking yeah. about the smell, which is no, interesting. No. Do, do we do we buy him killing the the father in that I, moment? I do. I didn't I, immediately, I, but yeah, I do I, now. I think that it I reflect makes sense. In it. The, I, I think we have to draw a distinction between someone who is a bad person and someone who is caustic. The father. Mm. Mr. Park is a lousy person because he's a snob. He's a much lower subtle snob than the others, the way he treats them. The, the line about, granted, he didn't think um, the dad was hearing him, but the whole, oh, he has the smell, mm. um, is very demeaning and belittling. And he didn't think the person would be there, yeah. which, had a, which had a big impact. Um, I, I appreciate that he puts himself up as someone who is not, you know, a man, a bit of more of a man of the people and just a regular guy, even though he's not. I think he's self-deceptive in this regard rather than trying to be deceptive of others. Mm. Therefore, his death is quite tragic. I do have a bite just because of not only how demeaned the dad was throughout the film, but then A, when... His daughter is dying. He's insisting that he give him the keys and fine. All right. All right. He gives it to him. And then when he tries to pick them up, he's more focused on the smell than the guy's dead daughter. Yeah. That pushed no, him over the exactly. edge. I buy that. I buy that too. Oh, yeah, and totally. and also that rather than shit, is your daughter okay? It's um, can we, or he doesn't know it's the daughter. Is this, is this young woman okay? It's, oh, my poor son, he fainted. You know? Like the- oh, no, no. It, it is implied that the son is in a pretty bad medical state because he had a seizure uh, when he first saw the ghost. Right, I forgot that. Um, which, on the on that point, though, the way they put that clue and those little tidbits just seamlessly into the plot, you know, he saw a ghost, we just dismiss it, and it comes up as hugely relevant later uh, in the story. Yeah, it's, it's really it's clever. So I, I mean, we've been talking about... Such an intricate script. Yeah, we've been talking about Bong Joon-ho setting up these scenes of violence, and I feel it's doing him a disservice because they're not 
they're not for shock value. In fact, they're set up quite ingeniously as to how they're going to play out. It's just that you don't see it coming. And I think that's a different kind of shock value than something like Tarantino, who does things specifically to manufacture shock value. So mm. I don't think Bong Joon-ho is doing it to manufacture shock value. The shock value is part of the script. Well, it's with part of the actual screenplay and how it's set up. It's just that you don't see it coming because you're so concerned in trying to uncover the next clue yeah. that you don't see 20 steps ahead where he's already... It's like a chess game. Any of these kinds of uh, shock or twist-based narratives, it's really about hiding the... You know, doing... You don't want the audience to feel cheated when these reveals come. Um, but you don't want it to give it away or have the audience even considering that something might be hap- hap- you know might be coming. It's about covering your tracks, and he does an amazing job at that. Um, partly because he's such a strong director, the in the moment, um, the scenes themselves are so well constructed that you are immersed in each individual scene as it comes, as opposed to trying to predict. To predict. And really, yeah, this this movie does go in some crazy directions. No one can predict something like yeah. that. The there being a bunker underneath the house that completely shifts the way the narrative plays out. Mm-hmm. It's interesting though that um, it, it's I think it's a way of expanding the class metaphor. You know, we've suddenly there's it's introduced. I guess you could say like homeless people almost, right? It is. It's the Morlocks and the Eloys in yeah, the time yeah. machine where you and I alluded earlier in the in to in the film how they are beneath the ground level and being mm. driven under this guy's even further under That's right. to elaborate on the metaphor and it's in H.G. Wells is the time machine due to English class disparity it's in, he envisions a world 800,000 years in the future where it is continued but you have this uh, it's very much like the uh, Lang, Fritz Lang film uh, Metropolis where you have a elite above ground and this massive uh, group below ground who are forced to toil in much worse circumstances and we're seeing just the beginning of that um, i'm really keen to get into how this relates to another film we talked about earlier in the year but before we do i'm just a couple of points I'd like to make the uh, gorgeous cinematography in this depth of field within the the house is absolutely stunning usually you get that sort of uh, range within much bigger environments but here in a pretty small space you capture some beautiful um Light and Ducks, particularly in um, the aforementioned sequence at the very end of the film where he reunites with the father and it's incredibly beautifully yeah. lit and he's apparently bought this house in this absolute fantasy. Yeah, it looks it looks, uh, it looks beautiful. The cinematography here is fantastic. And also we've been talking about genre mashups and how well Bong Joon-ho does that, but one of the great examples of this is, uh, you know, when you're talking about Similar scenes, but coming them, you know, they come back up again later on in the narrative. For example, the art therapy sequence with the daughter and the son, huh. and you know, and that's something that's played up for comedy, and you're laughing about it. But the way that's played up on its head, and that becomes the tragic kind of comeuppance towards the end, and you just realize that oh my god, the ghost you saw and what the ghost means, and how that plays up in the actual party sequence. And then he realized you were laughing about this about 45 minutes earlier, mm. which is really interesting because it, it makes you self-introspect about, hang on a second, why was I doing that when this was what was meant to be? So actually, if you knew that, you probably wouldn't be laughing about it when you were doing it. So it's interesting how the film catches you off guard about your own emotions, which is interesting. I loved the uh, aforementioned biblical flood sequence and the symbolism of that when oh, yeah. the abscess gets wrecked. And it could have been the end of the film, but again, it went on to this marvelous fourth act. A couple of my two favorite shots in the film 
are both take place on two different sets of stairs. One is when the father, Mr. Parker, is going upstairs. We flash downwards to the person below who is obsessed with him, who is switching on his lights to the extent that he doesn't even notice. It reminds me of those bits <laughs> in Black Mirror where they're perfectly happy with their consciousness being in some machine which knows what they like. And he's just somehow okay with... The lights um, flicking on like, as he walks. Oh, of course my house has this because I'm so rich. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> but, but they do address it that there might be a sensor problem, but it's not really that Oh, but that's a enough. reference to the Morse code bit, which I wish I knew Morse code better because I could have picked up on that. I'm sure people watching this would have noticed like the Morse code light flickering mm. throughout, throughout the film. But the first, time, the first time it's shown, it's interesting because it does happen as he walks up, the lights flicker on. So you don't really realize it's Morse code until it's actually referenced. So I think it was hidden pretty well. One of the other surprises in here is that the son in the backyard never notices the mosque well it never ends up mattering to the outcome that he's being potentially communicated to in in morse code but the son didn't know about the ghost about the he he recognized the quote Mm, but it never ended up playing out it never ended up being and then the son tells the parents it never ended up mattering it to the really outcome. It was a bit where he's like writing in his book. Uh, yeah, it's, so I, you I, think I hope I hope it's a bit like that. I wish I you knew. think yeah you think the film is going to go in that direction of but then uh, that okay now um, there's a direct line of communication the secret's going to get out but it never ends up mattering. Yeah, I, I thought something like the son would discover the actual yeah. basement and he would go down or that he would he... tell the parents you know it's funny I was given this Morse code message that says help I'm downstairs or something like that. Well, on discovering the basement, how nuts was the scene where they go downstairs and the former housekeeper's trying to push the thing this way and it's like what the hell is going on where are we that going that entire sequence is so good because um, it of course it comes at the moment of high tension well the, the way that the tension it actually it comes at the moment of because all the food under the table and she's going to find out and then what she's doing and then everyone's going downstairs yeah. it's like there's this guy there how long has he been there how did he get there and then having to clean up but also like <laughs> how it's set up as a false sinister kind of uh, you know play because when it's happening and the family is all day enjoying themselves and then the intercom buzzes and there's this, uh, you know, she's a woman in a raincoat and it's raining and she's like, oh, excuse me, can you let me in? And I was like, that was set up as such a creepy shot mm. and you felt like something sinister is going to happen and, you know, and it completely plays the opposite where you feel like the sinister person is coming in instead, actually, hang on, no, it's not, you know, she's actually the victim. So it is interesting how they played up your expectations. Yeah, um, well, because if we think the film's about class conflict, that the people who are lower than are always either trying to take advantage of or in direct conflict with the people on yeah, one I, rank higher than them. I, I thought she'd figure it out and she was there to take revenge. You know, that's what I was thinking at that point. Oh, so the best scene in the film is definitely when the guy comes up, when the kid's at the fridge, and you just see the ghost's head just it's move really above funny. the stairs. And it's, oh, and it's terrifying. Yeah. And But I'm laughing and everyone in the audience is laughing. <laughs> and it's this classically horrific shot of cinema where um, he has the wavy hair and his bloodshot eyes but are just yeah. moving Because the party, the party oh music in the background God. as well, it's contributing to that kind of very hilarious kind of interjection because mm. you have the party music in the background rising to a crescendo and then the head rising as well as you go wrong with it. So it's a really funny thing because, you know, it's like, oh, party mood. And then you're really ghosty sort of face rising from the stairs. So, yeah, it's something else that's um, another brilliant moment with a, just a mini reversal is when <laughs> the poor dad is uh, sprinkling blood on the paper towel. And then we see yeah. a shot with uh, the the rich mum coming up behind him as he's doing that. So you think he's about to be caught. 
uh, at least that's how I read it in that moment. Then suddenly we get this hilarious, uh, mock horrified face as he I, I, reveals I, that the. I, I never felt that tension. I always thought he had the upper hand there. Right. I just for a moment thought, oh, is, can yeah. she see that he's he's hunched over the bin spraying blood? But nope. Uh, but you there see, we go. again, this comes down to more tone than plotting. In a conventional mm. film, uh, absent a particular tone, yes, I appreciate it, I probably would have taken that, but this is at the point where the heist is magically coming together, yep. and you know yeah. that this is pretty much going to play out yeah. as they wanted it to. Fair so point. So I, I never really got that. Yeah, no, fair point. Um, let's talk about us. We are going <laughs> to... We, we, can't, we can't not make this comparison. We are going to... We, we did have a, a review for us earlier in the year, a spoiler and non-spoiler review. We are going to be spoiling Us, the Jordan Peele film that aired earlier this year. Uh, you have been warned in addition to Parasite. You've it been is, warned not to watch Us and to see Parasite instead. It's not that bad. This is so exponentially better. It is fascinating to compare these films because you have two mirror nuclear families and, at least in the case of Us, an overall metaphor, again, Morlocks and the Eloys, where there are people mm-hmm. above ground and there are lessers, lessers quote-unquote, below ground, except where us try to blatantly bludgeon that metaphor in, so you got the point, Parasite is it so seamlessly into narrative and practical ways. You could What we've just said about the guy being underneath, we actually haven't said why, because he was um, running away from debtors, you could actually absolutely believe the story that this guy would hide underground given no other opportunity and, you know, be, um, be there for years and years on end, and it gets the point but so much better than Jordan Peele ever did. Absolutely. Um, my big problem with us when we reviewed it earlier this year was that this, I'm sure Jordan Peele would argue, is a film about the fears of the rich people about, you know, of the poor, who they try not to notice. But Peele often casts the poor as something we should genuinely hate, Honestly, they they don't come across as um, people who've suffered and uh, you know with righteous anger. They, they he casts them too much in the cliches of horror movie villains and monsters. That I think the the film ends up basically arguing that we should. I, I would say the that the the subtext of the film is we should exterminate the poor. You know, because look at the poor and on it. I don't think Peel intended that. But is there any just uh, argument for humanity L- coming from... Like the Michelin Web sketch, you let's kill all the poor? Great guys. Yeah, but... Um, yeah. But, yeah, in, in us, the um, in, in order to create this conflict, um, and he's working on a much shallower level. He, you, you know, the leads who are the rich ones are are our heroes and they're being chased by people who gasp and who just want to inflict pain parasite there's so much nuance where as we spoke about earlier the people who in some ways could be seen to be you know criminals or villainous uh we're able to disapprove of some of their actions but empathize with them we're able to see that the the even though the rich come uh in some ways come off worse in this film particularly the the rich father there still is um, the nuance to have those be, in some ways, sympathetic, nice people. Us is just, I think, a very tonally and um, thematically confused film, whereas Parasite is extremely well thought through. Parasite is um, sort of satirizing how we might see those are different class. And, and with the, the mother in Parasite is 
I think for a lot of people, at least at the outset, will be a less sympathetic character for the way she outwardly treats the people who work for her. Mm. And the father may uh, be less so, but that dynamic quite switches as you see she is much more, much less aware, much more self-aware even than he is. Uh, with regards to us, God, the just, yeah, poor people, bad, can't talk, grumbling, want to kill you. Running around, want to cut your fingers off with scissors or whatever. Yeah. You know, like... Whereas these guys, um, they are prepared to, you know, go pretty far, but um, circumstances uh, are established as a prelude to that rather right. than just... Here yeah. you go. You 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 came back to this beach house, which you never should have come to. Yeah. And now there's now going to be violence. Die. Yeah. The watching us, I was really surprised at how he Peel didn't go more into trying to create empathy for the monsters, because that's the that's the obvious direction for a film like that, and but obvious in a good way. I mean, obvious is in why didn't you do this? You know, um, that yes, the, the, we have this anger, but we have to do this as opposed to just like going further with the metaphor in us. It's really not the. It, it's a poor metaphor for the division between the rich and poor because um, the, there was no way for the rich to notice the existence of the poor in us. They just uh, they as soon as they become aware of them, they're out to kill them. You know, I can't believe that there's this giant like plates and the and, and the only place you can get to it is a yeah. little mirror venue. Yeah. Whereas I, I appreciate that there's only one door to this underworld right. in Parasite, but it makes sense because it's a goddamn bunker. Yeah, look, the the concept in um, us makes no no sense, but I'm willing to just go with that. Okay, that's the magical reality of this film. It's just though that like there's no room if this is meant to be about the division and the conflict between rich and poor. There's just no room for empathy with for people who um, reveal themselves to the world only to want to kill you immediately. It's a poor um, metaphor if it's meant to be a metaphor for the uprising of the oppressed people. I mean, it's it's just a very... I mean, you clearly see the directorial differences and the basically stylistic differences, mm. but also how incredibly, on very different planets, Bong Joon-ho and Jordan Peele are when they're trying to execute their screenplay. I think mm. that's what stands out most between us and Parasite. Yeah. Is even though they're dealing with the similar subject matter, what really is and this was mentioned even in the interview with Bong Joon Ho, where someone asked him, like, you know, why did you feel that you should have cast maybe the rich family or the poor family in a much more, you know, black and white kind of light so right. that you can make the distinction clearer. Mm. And his response in a very cheeky way was like, well, why should have I? I mean, you know, yeah. I think I trust my audience to come to the conclusions because I give them the benefit of the doubt that they are smart enough to make sure they realize what I'm trying to do. And real people are not like that. Real people are much more complex. They're and not as, you know, they're not as, you know, clearly cut as, you know, black and white figures that you can say they're all evil or they're all good, yeah. which often happens in Jordan Peele movies. Well, and this at is least two of them. Well, least. and this is really the dif- distinction between. American cinema and uh, the alternatives we have right now because Parasite is not an art film. Parasite is a mainstream th- a- a comedy thriller. Yeah, it's, it's, a genre it's unconventional, film. It's a but genre it's film. extremely accessible to anyone, I would say, really, who watches films, uh, as long as you can deal with the violence. But, um, and subtitles, that's about it. Well, yeah. <laughs> but in terms of the, the content, but 
when was the last time there was a thriller that was anywhere near this intelligent in its construction or in its themes coming out of the United, like a mainstream release coming out of America? It's been a long time. You know what? I was going to say it's not an American film. It was set in America, a film that tried to go for that sort of um, multi-layered character dynamics. And uh, it's the Polanski film with Jodie Foster and John C. Riley. Uh, oh, Carnage. Carnage. That was really going for it. Um, I don't think it handled it nearly as well, but it was. They mm. were very clear about the class disparity between the Kate Winslet, Christoph Waltz couple, and the was it John C. Riley? It was John C. Riley jo- and, and Jodie Foster. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't, and this is why it's probably my favorite film of the year. There isn't something which is willing to play with genre to this extent, which is willing to um, shock you, but sparingly and what it has the most effect later and also be two hours and 15 minutes this is what the movies are supposed to be in terms of how it's that accessible but it's also super cinematic it's doing things in a way that tv wouldn't do in terms of the intricacy of the construction that you know it takes a long time and a lot of money to do you know relative to tv production to do the sorts of things that we see in parasite so i wonder if, if america were producing films like this if so many audiences wouldn't have turned their back on movies entirely in favor of TV. Okay, in terms of plotting, all right, I just watched season two of Discovery of Star Trek. Pure plotting-wise, it's outstanding. It's intricate. It leads back 50 years into the origins of the show. Mm. Um, there are television shows which will... Like, this is the first season of Jessica Jones does it to a great extent. Mm. Um, are, we, are we not... Killing Eve is great. Uh, Fleabag is fantastic. My, my point isn't TV is bad. Um, obviously... There's well, a lot of great TV the right now. Examples are among TV, right? Yeah, now. I, 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 yeah, yeah I think people the... are turning to TV away from movies because of this reason. You yes, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. But also, Game but of Thrones in the early seasons to its credit. But this film is, um, but it has the benefits that of cinema has, which a lot of American films I think aren't really using well, which is the ability to put together these extremely intricate visual, um, you know, sequences held together by motion. Little things like the, as you mentioned, the rising party music playing when the ghost, <laughs> yeah. when the ghost appears, just like complete mastery of the elements. But formally. That, kind, that kind of visual comedy. I mean, I can only think of Edgar Wright doing something yeah. like that. Yeah, and, the, the the camera gliding over to reveal um, the daughter rolling under the bed. Mm-hmm. You know, P- yeah, the son, yeah, the son, yeah, the son, because his on the flip side jumps, up, yeah. rolls on too. Um, the shot of him appearing at the party as being so nonplussed and just thought not only am I outside but there are so many people here what do I do now before mm-hmm. anyone's even seen this horrific figure amid all these really nice suits and dresses and Sunday best yeah. also like some throwaway gags like you know when uh, the mother's describing to the uh, the other mother, which is now playing the housemaid, that I want the party set up to be in this crane-like formation. The tables need to be set up precisely like that. And that was hilarious because, you know, it's exactly something like, you know, an affluent person would say. I don't just want, you know, a good party. I want it to be perfectly set up you like that. There's, so. a real, there's a real tragedy to that I sequence. I like my because... whole not sure friends parties suddenly in my head. Flashing <laughs> back. Sorry, private school kids, you will suck. Anyway, demonstrate. But the, um, <laughs> uh, the it's a real tragedy that sequence because it would have been perfectly plausible for one of them to call up and say, "My house just got flooded. I can't come to work." But if all four of them do it, um, it yeah. leads to, "Wait a minute, what's going on here? Do you two, all, you four, all know each other?" Because the <laughs> film is, and, and that's made it really sad. But more than that, 
it sets up as a family movie. If this didn't have the hints, at least towards the middle or later on, about the really violent elements, this could just as well have ended with a second act, oh, wait a minute, you're all part of the same family. Exactly. You betrayed us out of house. But wait a minute, we all love you, so we're going to come back into a house yeah. and we're all going to be friends, aristocrats, he's aristocrat sw- style. <laughs> he swerves, <laughs> the aristocrats. No, he, he completely swerves um, from a lot of the easy ways that this plot could have no. found out. And it, even though it is very on the nose, I love how the rich family live at the top of the hill <laughs> and the poor family not only live at the bottom of the hill, but mostly underground. Yeah. yeah, I mean the water literally is running down into, from yeah. their house. Yeah, I mean another thing. Another house. thing about flooding, and this is something I noticed or realized after, is that you know the other reason why they would come back to work is this idea of soldiering on, which mm. is very prevalent in you know not affluent uh, people because they believe if you take a day off from work that you basically you're not conditioned to do that. I'm reminded you know. of um, American Factory, where we go yes. visit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where we visit the Fuyao Factory in China, where um, the Americans can't believe that uh, the the Chinese say, "Yeah, you know, we get one weekend off a month. We work every single day of the month, but two. <laughs> and it's just that's a different mindset from poor people struggling. Yeah, but then it, Australians the will say, "Hold on, you guys only get Americans only get two weeks of leave a year." So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not, not to say that everyone does in Australia does get uh, four weeks of leave, and certainly yeah. there are issues with employment but it's, rights. But it's just interesting to see that this film has so much to unpack. Like, the more you think about it, the more you kind of find layers, and it's still a fun film. So it's interesting the film can be cerebral, it can be fun, it can be entertaining, and still give you plenty to think about. So it's not that hard, guys. Just make good movies. <laughs> and we've, all, we've all had that moment of trying to find the Wi-Fi somewhere we can yeah. all relate Oh, it's so good. Just yeah. make more movies like this. Make more movies like this. I know, because you guys probably have heard us, you know, bashing so many movies over the years. See this. See this and they're talking about how bad Marvel is and I, bloody, bloody, I was blah. talking, well, you know, I was at a party a few weeks back and I said something about, I think it was John Wick 3, and I maybe said <laughs> so, something self-deprecating or whatever, and, and uh, but... That I didn't like it or whatever, and someone said, "Yeah, but Chris, you don't like many movies." So, <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, or you don't. It, it, might, it was either that, or you don't like most movies. But that's but, true. But I guess it, it's, it is true. It, it is an accurate statement, but I don't think it's a bad statement. It's just if you watch everything, is, yeah, yeah, you, your taste it, becomes. This, this sounds so snobbish. Like, but, but it's but not. The taste it's does not, become more discriminating. Yeah it, yeah, it isn't really snobbish. Anyone, anyone's taste would become more discriminating if if they watched the you know a lot of films it's just natural i think but also you know your expectations become you know your, this your is something i would not tolerate high. yeah you know and yeah. and then you realize the majority of output that comes mm. out is kind of less than and good you, and you notice some um, things that might have impressed you otherwise now come across as derivative yeah. which is you, why you're comparing it to yeah. things you've seen before that that were similar but better it's just harder to impress which is why a film like parasite exactly. is so surprising it, it veers Being against expectations and nothing extremely original on which is anything, why we've given yeah. it so much time because i think it deserves to be like celebrated and talked about and you know for like hours and hours and hours and days and weeks and months and eons and yeah. centuries the, on end. The brilliance has gone nearly as long as the movie. Yeah. <laughs> the brilliance, yeah, the brilliance is that this is done within the context of a accessible to all audiences film that has elements of. Oh, I don't know. There are very violent elements. Yeah, yeah. Dissuade. Outside yeah. of the violence, I agree. But it has elements of comedy, the, it has, of, of thriller. It has action and horror almost creeping in in to a, uh, an extent. Uh, one scene. 
Um, and speaking of how accessible it is to some audiences, I really no one's talking about the sex scene in this movie, um, where with the Park fan, the two members of the Park family are on the couch while the other members of the other family are just on the table beneath them, and it's, I mean, in a pure clinical sense, it's entirely extraneous to proceedings but i really like the scene because it did more to humanize these two characters than yeah. anything else in the movie which really sets up uh for the, for the real tragedy that happens later mm. and it's such a good point um it, it, it's it's such a it's normal it's like just to you, you it could be any yeah, couple it, it's it's not a sexualized sex scene as people make it out to be you know oh my you know like you know oh it's a sex scene you know it's just you know, uh, they're just on the couch. They're but they're, they're, they're a couple of love each other. Yeah, yeah, you know. It's a couple who are just watching their kid out in the backyard, just making sure they're okay. And it's like, oh, what do you think? But yeah. time in our hands. Exactly. And yeah. Which is actually, again, a very un-American thing to do because I think in American movies, they any pause. sex scenes, they pause and, you know, either it's leading up to, you know, some character getting killed, as in most horror movies. Is, mm. No sex scenes preceding that. Or, you know, sex is used as one kind of, you know, um, character motivation or leveraging one thing or another. This is actually just... I loved it how it was just in service of character introduction or character characterization rather than actually plot device, mm. which most people use sex as. And sex scenes, at least. You know what? This is a, <laughs> sex maybe as well. So. But, but this is a callback to... And um, I was reading this. This is great biography of Billy Wilder and they were talking about I was going through it the other night and they were talking about double indemnity and there's a this is during the Hayes Code and you couldn't show sex but there is a scene where I'm sorry the actress in double indemnity uh I can't remember her name. Oh, um, uh, hang on. Yeah, we'll, we'll look it up. But there's a sequence where um they go to a, an apartment and then a, the next shot she's sitting on a couch smoking a cigarette meetings have very heavily implied but uh you had to pause dramatically for these reasons. So it was built into American cinema that sex scenes were an event. You had to pause or had a shift or they had a... Oh, it's, Bob, it's Barbara Stanwyck. I really... Course, yeah. I, I should have just immediately been able to say that. So apologies. I've I've shown my weakness as a film nerd. We, we actually... We don't talk about a lot of like pre-50s movies. We should, we I guess. We should. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of great we, we, stuff we, there. we should do a sort of noir special of the 40s or, or 50s. A screwball comedy or a noir Go, special. I've been mm-hmm. I mean, trying to watch more Fred Astaire movies. I've been watching a lot of Elvis movies. Okay. Nice. Yep. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Lost me there. Uh, well, I, I love his music because my dad is a big Elvis fan, but I wouldn't go so far as trying to watch his movies. Oh, they, they're, they're gold. I know. They're from a different time. Yeah, just traumatized by that. The, okay, moving the, on. With, I think sex is treated very differently in American cinema, and it's treated as it ha- it's treated as a pivotal or point or events in a narrative or a point where things ultimately change character wise or plot wise whereas here it's just character building and just a reg- in the regular is. course of events it just is it's closer to European cinema in that sense where mm. you know not not in a kind of like oh European cinema it was sex blah, blah, but, but, you know but, but like more like you know incidental, no deal. incidental to the plot it's not it's not um, trying to in service of anything and yeah. Portrait Lady on Fire took a similar approach I would say yeah actually yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's a very yeah. a non. It's a non-puritanical approach, really, in a lot of ways. I, that, that's yeah. a good point. Maybe America, because yeah, America of that, has very, this very Puritan biblical, influence. I yeah, which uh, seeps into politics and everything else. Yeah, mm-hmm. they like how <laughs> it's so rare to see sex portrayed as no big deal in American cinema. Yeah, it maybe yeah. No, it's got that very uh, National Lampoon kind of vibe to it. Because I, I do feel National Lampoon kind of captured not. Not actually just making fun of that, but also something which is very incidental to American cinema, which is like, 
we can only see sex like that. It has to be like either exaggerated or, yeah. you know, blown the opposite way where it's like, no, 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 it's no big deal, which makes it an even bigger deal. The Naked mm. Gun had a pretty few good, pretty good shots yeah. of this. Yeah, so that's kind yeah. of... Um, all right, so that is Parasite. Um, we could, we could, yeah, we, you could, and we can't. We did did talk for hours about this movie. We, we could, could talk longer, keep, honestly. Could, There's more just to say. Keep talking about it. Yeah, so, um, I it's mean, great. The, the bit, the bit at the beginning with the pizza boxes, and <laughs> I was thinking about the pizza boxes before. What is what a funny little detail that isn't lingered over and isn't overplayed. Yeah, and the, like the, the just the indignity of having to argue yeah. about though we folded it this way, we don't want to be docked our pay. We yeah. want to keep doing it. Uh, the, and the, I, the fascination going into the house for the first time when most of the film oh, takes yeah. place and just seeing this and beautiful we alluded to it earlier. They're never going to live. We alluded earlier to just how intricate and beautiful the production design of the house is. Oh, because it's so essential to the entire plot, and by necessity, it has to be an open plan because you need to have see a lot of what's going on in the background. You want to be able to see have people running around a lot more. You don't want. There's a reason. Um, in the actual West Wing, there's a lot of cubicles and walls, but when they made the West Wing, the TV series, they opened it up and just put in the windows because they wanted to have stuff going on around. It's the same sort of thinking behind this. So mm. it's very well designed, the house. I'm impressed that they built it from the ground up. Mm. The uh, Also, I really like the uh, how ominous the shots of um, the doorway leading to downstairs are when as uh, the underground... Uh, layer aspect of the plot comes into play. I was just really taken with a few shots where the camera's just kind of you, you've got this nice, bright, spacious environment, then there's this kind of almost like a dark cave in the center of the narrative that's just looming closer as the camera tracks in. Oh. It's just so well choreographed for the camera. Oh, I, I feel like we're restarting our parathetic yeah. <laughs> I've got yeah. a note. One triple layered excellent comment was when the um, Mr. Park is commenting on the former housekeeper and says we like her but she eats for two which leads yeah. into um, the fact that the plot of how the husband's down there which and is also just a incredibly snobbish comment about how uh, people who are wealthy see people who uh, aren't necessarily as wealthy and are willing to dismiss someone who's been working for them slavishly for so many years. Exactly, yeah, because the, initially, initially you think it is meaning that, and then the other meaning comes into play. Oh, once, so well done. You know, mm. like, but so then, clever. But it turns out that um, Bong allows it to just be a snobbish, dismissive comment where yeah. they focus on the negative about this person because when they say, oh, so this is where the food's going, the housekeeper says, no, I actually buy the food for him out of my own pocket. <laughs> yes, that's like oh, line is actually true. in the that film. Oh, I forgot that about that. So, so it works in this. Oh. It's another expectation flip worked into this oh, incredibly and, intricate and, script. And, and that poor character, I mean, she was offering to pay the family whatever money she had to let her husband stay there. Yeah, I like the, the way that she was willing to just explain, yes, he lives under here and she's okay with being allied with the family until she realizes that they are a family and then she thinks, hang on, oh, that you screwed they, me out of my the, job. The, the she was just all, willing to accept it the, until then. The moment where they all fall down the stairs in this Looney Tunes type way. Yeah. Oh, it's just, just so great. Yeah. And also, a slapstick. Oh, huh? oh, so, yeah. so use of phones. I, I was complaining about. I was, I was complaining. Um, Anne Timpson, who directed Come to Daddy, we'll talk about this. He has a horror film where there's an excellent explanation for why mobile phones mm. are not present, and this and you, you, people don't factor phones and no. technology into writing anymore. It's, Bong Joon Ho did. He did. Yeah. It's, it's so. Um, I think everyone's always writing stories based on the template of the past, where phones 
didn't exist, but they've changed everything in terms of how we communicate with each other. The hostage sequence. Move and I'll press send. Now, what are we going to do with all of yeah. you? Just gold. Like, yes, he used the, the situation. It's, it's pathetic that what else would you do? Yeah, it's, it's so great that he was able to just accept the challenge of using phones in this narrative and use it to heighten attention. Because as you alluded to with the Ant Timpson interview that you just brought up, Often, if um, phones are mentioned at all, the film has to think of a way not to include them in the narrative in these kinds of thriller setups. But then, like honestly, if there was, if this was set twenty years ago with no mobile phone, would there just be a fight? Would they just start off with a fight? Would someone have a gun? Would, would someone be running up to? Would it be clawing at the person who's running upstairs to call on the landline phone? Yeah. Probably. Probably, or cut the cut the landline. They they, they, yeah. they make an attempt to cut the landline. That's how it would work. Right. Interesting. But also, just the quality of subs. I mean, it really translated a lot of the double meaning wordplay as well as the expectations. Yeah, there's a very good a very good localization going on here. Um, we saw some bad ones at the festival. I think, oh yeah, so. um, Never Look Away. There were two films, including Never Look Away, which had misspelling errors in the subtitles. Never Look Away. Um, I can say this, but very few films actually had some some of the nuance of the German translation wasn't evident it could have done a little bit better we to... you know we honestly did okay this year because years and years ago i saw at the sydney film festival the king of pigs which is a korean animated film from the director who went on to make uh, train to busan um but uh i didn't think the king of pigs was very good train to busan's good by the way um but the i but i don't know how much of the experience was just ruined um because of how horrible the subtitles are. Maybe I need to rewatch this with better subtitles and it's actually a good film because nothing will compa- compare. Um, it was like, it was broken English and it, w- it was like missing words, um, spelling errors. It was just horrible. Anyway, that didn't happen, thank God. So the subtitle situation wasn't that bad. Yeah, um, there was a play I saw with um, Debbie Zhao, who's a critic last year. Um, For a rough cut, recently launched Australian online film magazine. And it was kind of t- we went together, and it was a play that was predominantly um, uh, in Mandarin. And I don't speak it. She she does. So she was able to explain afterwards, yeah, uh this a uh, lot of this was uh, not particularly accurate. The subtitles would have conveyed a lot of the nuance. So you don't. I I, I wish I spoke another language more fluently. And subtitles, uh, subtitling is really difficult. Translation is difficult because, as Verrett was saying, you have to find ways to translate wordplay, um, allusions, and double meanings and idioms that have no direct equivalent. But Bong Joon Ho stated that there's aspects of this film that he thinks that non-Korean people will completely miss. Um, so I think there's there's probably even more and more depth to this film. <laughs> so that is Parasite. Uh, along with Yesterday, it is in cinemas tomorrow. A go see Parasite. Um, yesterday kind of feels like, you know, almost far away. like yesterday. <laughs> yeah, so far away. <laughs> Trumped me before I even went for the joke. Uh, well, that was... Oh, there's so many Beatles puns you could just work in. Just, just, yeah, just go see Parasite. Go, go see Parasite. Um... If you're a medium Beatles fan and you feel like something absolutely schlocky, then uh, sure, yesterday. If you're a hardcore Beatles fan, a lot of Beatles fan, don't I see it. I'm still amazed how Lily James has the crush. And she's oh, the yeah. worst. I mean, it's, it's just... What, what is she doing in this movie? Lily James, you're so much better than this. She hasn't had many good roles, to be honest. Uh, Mamiya 2, Cinderella. <laughs> Mamiya 2. two. So, but the, I, I, unlike you, I really disliked Mamiya 2, but I'll admit it's a pretty good role. 
Guernsey, she wasn't bad in. Uh, Dark Star was terrible. But, but that's the thing. She's so good even Baby in bad driver. movies because she's able to like actually, in, you know, insert so much positive energy. And mm. she really has a screen presence. I should watch Downton Abbey. I understand she's in it. Oh, God, no, don't do that. All right, so... No. Uh, th- <laughs> no. So thanks, Lisa Malou, for joining us. Yeah. Uh, we'll be back next week talking maybe Booksmart. Um, yeah, we, we should do Booksmart, actually. Isn't that it's coming out in two weeks? Oh, it is Oh, it is next week, isn't it? No, it's no, week. it's two weeks from now. Oh, it's two weeks. Spider-Man. Yeah, it's like... Oh, Spider-Man, we're doing... yeah. <laughs> I guess we'll be talking Spider-Man. Spider-Man Friendly Man, neighborhood Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Uh, yep. I, apparently it's good. Yeah, uh, that's what that's they, what say they about exactly. every Marvel movie. That's what they always say. <laughs> I believe it when I good. see it. You know they just. You know what they just High released. Five, <laughs> you know what they just released the new trailer for the current war, the one that was supposed to come out two years ago. Apparently, it's been re-edited. It was. It's funny because it's such a goddamn Weinstein movie. Like it's. It gives you the same vibe as something like the Imitation Game, where it's like, oh god, oh, that was terrible. It's just like C grade Oscar bait. Um, that Weinstein's really pushing, but, starring like currently you know, Oscar Beatty actors. But also, like, in fairness, I'll see anything Michael Shannon's in. But yeah, like, it's Benedict been, Cumberbatch yeah, is so now. much better than you know, even Nicholas Holt. Like, you know, these characters have proven that they can do much better. Well, the, 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 Benedict Cumberbatch is in Patrick Melrose, which is such a wonderful yeah, TV I've never series. Seen it, but yeah. yeah, I'll check it out. But the thing about the current war is the backstory on this was that it premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival. Two poor reviews, and then the Weinstein scandal broke out a few weeks later. So they so used the maybe, excuse of the Weinstein scandal to kind of. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't just to. an excuse. I think they just no longer had the money to release films. Well, so, if, if if it was a bad film, then maybe it was a blessing in disguise. Yeah, apparently it's re-edited. gone through. Yeah, it's been re re edited. To, to put Tom Big changes front made. And center, I'm sure. Maybe maybe even reshoots. I'm not sure. God. But now it's finally coming to cinemas. The story about uh, Thomas Edison and uh, Tesla that you... It is about Edison and Tesla. Yeah, it is. Yeah. The, the, and and, 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 and uh, Nicholas Holt. Oh. And and oh. Uh, Michael Shannon's playing Westinghouse. Oh. Yeah, it's a three-way war. It's a three-way... Interesting. A, okay. No, okay. threesome, three-way, threesome. whatever. Um, yeah, the threesome <laughs> between Edison, Westinghouse, and Tesla. Yeah, uh, it's got Michael Shannon. I'll see it. I went to Tesla's house. But Michael Shannon was in Man of Steel... And Shape of he Water. He was good in Man yeah. of Steel. <laughs> he was good in Man of Steel and he was good he, in Shape of Water. Actually, no. And he was hang good on, in Bad Boys hang too. Hang on. He's, I've <laughs> seen the trailer. He's essentially playing, once again, Hail Satan from uh, Shape of Water. He's playing the exact same role as Westinghouse in, in this movie, Current War. Well, sorry, but how did Hail Satan I mean, you know, the, Hail Sorry, Satan? Incarnation of Satan. You know, oh, that's, right. That's, okay. that's what I meant. That's what and, I meant. And he's playing... Yeah. Westinghouse in, in the Current War. Better than Cumberbatch's. No, no, uh, Michael Shannon. Michael, oh, Michael Shannon. Sorry, Michael Shannon is okay. Well, I'm sorry. So that's I, hope, I hope Westinghouse fridges don't, you know, yeah. get screwed over because of this. Um, have a wonderful night. Enjoy movies. Enjoy Parasite, if that's the right word. Yeah. The, what are the best title films of? Her, all oh, year? the ti- Yeah, the title's so great. It, I, I, I guess we're in the spoiler section. So yeah, just because the family are the parasite. But really, is the parasite the the man who's at the bottom who's feeding off the? People providing to well, him. Well, no, he's not feeding off them. He's feeding off the food his wife buys. Well, yeah, <laughs> actually, yeah. yeah, true. So, who is the real parasite? Is there other rich the parasite because they're feeding off other people's, you know, and them uh, uh, feeding off other people's work? Yeah, well, I, on the smell or you know, just generally, you know, snobbishness. I said, just on this, mm. the poster, I don't get some of the blacked out eyes. I guess it's meant to mean that um, a hidden identity. 
Yeah, I, I don't. It's a strange see poster. It. it is. It's a very visually striking poster. It's a great poster on its own terms. It just doesn't. It's hard to relate it to just, what just you see in the film. The rock. Go, yeah, just go. go, go. <laughs> just be the picture of the rock. I think it's a good poster. It's just go go see the movie because, like, actually, how can you? You can you can call us up and tell us what the poster means. Yeah. If, yeah. If, yeah, if if you have a different view, let us. If you, seriously, if you have a different view on yesterday or Parasite, let us know. Yeah. And, and also, if you're familiar with we'll, like Korean culture and you've actually had more insight into Parasite that we don't like know. Like if you've lived at the bottom of someone's mansion <laughs> no, 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 no way. in the or secret like, or, or, or if there's a language element of the language function, translation yeah. which you might not get because yeah. we don't yeah. speak the language. Yeah, let us know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let us know. Let us know. So, thank you for Madman yeah. for putting out. Uh, thank you for putting it out so quickly. Yeah, I like that they that it. Unlike the situation with Burning, we're not waiting a a year to we have go. a general release. And the Portrait will be out before the end of the year. Uh, well. Portrait yeah. Instead will be out for the end of the year, which is really good. Yeah. Uh, what else is coming out? Dead Don't Die. Ugh. Dead Don't Die is coming out in October. Great. Uh, yeah. We would be dead by that. Anyway, well, but actually, no. Smarts next week. Uh, Shout out to Madman, Madman, Madman. Shout out to the, the Madman of Madman, Madman. Mad <laughs> Mad so. actually, like you know, we don't give studio shout out and stuff because you know we hate the studios. It's, but this is one we, we love. Bring us movies. Look, no, 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 this look, is one we love. I, I, yeah, no, we we rely on them. We're the parasites. <laughs> um, but the thing, but I live in Madman's basement. Don't yeah. look now. <laughs> no, but, but um. Yeah, they're giving this a big push. Yeah. It's playing at, at at Vent Cinemas. It's playing at the Randwick Ritz. It's yeah, playing really, at really, Orpheum, really Dendi, mainstream commercial. Yeah, release, that's yeah. right. It's yeah. playing probably playing at quite a few events and Hoyts. So yeah, I've told like a bunch of people ask me, you know, what's your favorite thing for the festival? What, what should, should I, I see? go see? Go see Parasite. Go see Parasite. Yeah, see, it's it, the it, best film to come out in uh, gen- in Australian cinemas um, in many months at, at least. Yeah, I can't think of one that I'm as have been as excited about. In a while, yeah, not not in, not in general release. The maybe, only film, maybe Cold War last year. The only film on this echelon, actually, um, of, that I've seen this year in general release. I um I don't think it's quite as good, but this kind of uh, realm of quality is if Beale Street could talk. Mm. Oh yeah, I, I once again that came out technically last year and it just but February so in Australia, there. yeah, February Valentine's Day release of all. Yeah, so we, it's really weird. Yeah, we can only hope something. Can top something like this? Yeah, because th- this film does talk. So you know, it's not just Beale Street. It, it the house talks. <laughs> the house in Parasite talks. Yeah. So <laughs> that that masterpiece on many levels is in cinemas tomorrow. In many levels. <laughs> uh, yeah. We can't just stop. I think we should just stop talking. We're going to stop talking now. It's been Glenn Falconside, Lucy Maloof, Chris Evans, and Rightly Rue. Have a good night, morning, whenever you're listening. Uh, enjoy Parasite. Enjoy movies. Good night. We command you. Enjoy Parasite.